Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back. Relax and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, lizard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use My Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441-7290. This includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to Prepare with com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290. Or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. You're here live. Listen to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media, the Lone Star, Daily News. On iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck. What they go to the name of the show, you know what we're going to say. The name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio Annie, along with my debonair and erudite co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I am doing fine. I'm enjoying Curtis, the spring-like weather here. Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's sunny. 
Yep, I got you now. It's sunny. It's climbing up to the 80s over here. Probably a little warmer down by you, uh, but it got a gorgeous, gorgeous day outside. Gorgeous day. Heading into a nice weekend. (laughs) Want to (laughs) welcome everyone that's listening in the studio, also up on Facebook and YouTube. And also in our chat room here, um, and we've got a lot to do today. Uh, we've got some very interesting guests, and uh, we're going to enjoy them. We've got Dr. Rob Cohen. Uh, he is the host of a podcast called Democrisis, and we're going to be talking to him about a variety of issues. Uh, we have returning my friend, Gregory Wrightstone, the author of Inconvenient Facts, a debunking global warming hoax. So we're going to be talking to him about the new the Green New Deal, and several other things along with him. And then we're going to end the show with a new guest, Carrie Question, and he is the founder of Action Family Rehab. Uh, he's got a, a take on the opioid crisis and a lot of other things. And hes I listened to him on Joe Messina's show, and uh, I reached out, and I ended up booking him for ours. Um, people don't pay much attention to the drug and alcohol crisis across the nation, and it's only getting worse. Uh, so I think we better educate ourselves on it and uh, see what is out there to help people with these problems. So like I said, we've got a lot to talk about and a lot to do. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, before I go into the dedication, uh, everyone is talking about, guess what, Curtis? Jesse Smollett. Oh, not that guy again. Jesse Smollett. Yeah. I mean, he makes Alexandria, uh, uh, how do you pronounce her last name? AOC. Uh, Cortez. Cortez. Yeah, that, that, that broad. <laughs> he makes her yeah. look like a brain surgeon, what he did. Yeah. Oh, man. And then uh, one of the talking heads uh, on one of the other radio stations was saying, well, you're convicting him before he has a trial. Wait a minute. They brought evidence forward. They spent seven minutes, the uh, assistant attorney, uh, district attorney, outlining the charges they have against him and the evidence they have on those charges against him. It is intensive. It is detailed. And it's damning. So he has gone before a judge. He's had to put up bail. So obviously there's something here. Please don't just go around arresting people just for the heck of it. Really? Come on. I mean, this clown decided that he wasn't getting paid enough uh, on this show he was on, Empire. Well, guess what? He wasn't getting paid enough. He was getting 125000 per episode. 125000 per episode, and that's not enough money? Really? Memorize a few lines, yeah. Well, I wish they would apply the same mentality with Trump, though, you know, not convicting him before he's found guilty of anything. And, and, and better yet, they started an investigation without a crime. I mean, what is Mueller investigating? What crime did Trump, you know, supposedly, you know, commit? And here we have Jesse Smollett, who has uh, committed a crime. Not only that. Um, he's lied to the police in the past, so he has a history of lying, of perjury. Uh, he mails to the studio an envelope containing a white powder, and it, it comes across as a terrorist letter, which is exactly what it was. 
it doesn't matter the fact he mailed it to himself. He mailed it to the studio, so the studio receives it, gets investigated as if it's a terrorist letter, which it was by law. So he commits a felony, lies to the police about that, compounds that with perjury. And every time he lied to a district attorney, the grand jury, a police officer, a detective, every single time he lied, that's another count of perjury. So this guy, wow. I mean, he's going away for a long time, for a very long time. And it, he shows up at the set after being released on bail, expecting to you know, shoot the scenes. And what does he do? He tells to his crew, his fellow castmates, I'm completely innocent. How can you say yeah. that with a straight face? He's an actor. <laughs> so... How do you do that with a straight face? But anyway, he's going to have to accompany because because there's another big name in the news today, and his name is R. Kelly, and he's been finally arrested for um, sexual, you know, misconduct, especially with minors. Um, I don't know how well you know him, but. He he's won quite a few Grammys for that song. I believe I can fly and things like that. And he was married to um, oh, really? the late um, singer Aaliyah when she, he married her when she was 15. Oh yeah, they just had a expose on um, Lifetime about a month ago about this guy and how he would hold women hostage and young girls and rape them and things like that. He's gotten away with it for over two decades at least. But now they got the goods on them. Wow. Wow. You know, the Hollywood elite think they can't get away with it. And that's what it comes down to. The Hollywood elite lives by one set of values, and the rest of the world has to live by a different. You also now have the uh, arrest of the owner of the the Patriots, the New England Patriots, the Super Bowl champs. uh, Oh, yeah. Involved in in the sex trafficking ring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elitism on the left is just stunning. Uh, heaven forbid it happened to be a conservative that did any of this. And now they're still crying over in Virginia trying to get charges against the uh, lieutenant governor. They're upset, and rightly so, that no action has been taken against him, and rightly so. Well, that said, let's move on. Um, Again, I want to welcome everyone that's listening up in the chat room and in the studio. If you're listening in the studio after I do the dedication, you want to join in the conversation, please remember to press 1. Otherwise, I will be assuming that you are only listening in. And each and every show, we do a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Master Police Officer Joseph William Shiners of the Provo Police Department in Utah. His end of watch was January 5th of 2019. And this comes from several different sources. One is Fox News, one is ABC4, and the other is Fox 13 now. And it starts off, a police officer in Utah was shot and killed while trying to apprehend a dangerous fugitive on Saturday night, January 5th of 2019, officials said. Officer Joseph Shiners, 29, of Provo Police Department, was shot during the incident, Chief Richard Ferguson told reporters at a news conference the next day. Around 10 p.m., 
officers received information regarding the whereabouts of a fugitive. When they tried to arrest the suspect near a bed, bath, and beyond in Orem, roughly 40 miles south of Salt Lake City, Shiners was shot. Investigators said it appeared Shiners was able to return fire and hit the suspect. A 40-year-old, possibly homeless man, who had recently been making threats of violence against police officers at least once. Police did not name the suspect. Shiners was rushed to a hospital where he died just before midnight, officials said. The suspect remained under guard at a hospital in stable condition, according to police. Shiners was a three-year veteran of the Provo Police Force who was assigned to the department's patrol division. Joe Shiners was intelligent. He was honorable. He was hardworking. He was decent in every single way, and he exemplified the nobility of policing, Ferguson said. He was the very best of the Provo Police Department. Ferguson said he posthumously promoted Shiners to the rank of master officer. The officer left behind a wife and young son. Hundreds of police Hundreds of people gathered at the UCCU Center for a funeral of the late Provo Master Police Officer Joseph Shiners. He was the first police officer killed in the line of duty in the United States in 2019 while attempting to arrest a wanted fugitive. He was 29 years old and leaves behind a wife and baby boy. His life had been very short, too short. But during that time, He's been exemplary of his service of his fellow men, said Governor Gary Herbert. Master Officer Shiners was born on September 25, 1989, in Boston, Massachusetts, but later relocated to Utah, where he attended the University of Utah and Utah Valley University. He served an LDS mission in El Salvador, where he learned Spanish and returned to visit several years later. His widow, Kaylin, met him in high school and later joined him in Utah, where they got married in 2012 in the Drapper LDS Temple. In May of 2017, they gave birth to their baby boy, Logan. Visibly emotional during the service, she still managed to make everyone laugh to honor her husband's outgoing and silly personality. The wife of fallen Provo officer speaks at the funeral. She spoke at her late husband's funeral, surrounded by thousands of mourners, Utah leaders, and law enforcement officials. On her husband's life, through precious moments they shared. My husband was so many wonderful things, Kaylin said. What I will miss most about him and what I will honor is who he was in the quieter moments in our life at home and with me and my son. Kaylin shared a story of her husband's generous nature, recounting a number of times when he would pay $60 out of his own money to help someone who needed a warm hotel to sleep in. She shared the simple things that made him smile. Joe is the man who loves clean sheets. She reflected on the competitive spirit that made Joseph Shiners who he was. Joe is the man who loved to play soccer and loved to play hockey. Even though he spent 40% of every game in the penalty box, she said as the audience let out a chuckle. But Kaylin, it was the funny moments, 
Joe is the man that had no fear unless it was snakes, and that was the only time he threatened to divorce me, she laughed. Most of all, she shared the moments that truly gave him life. He was the man who went from being scared to have a baby to snuggling our son to sleep every night, Kaylin said. That was the last thing he did before going to work that night. She said that Shiners was so excited when he and Kaylin's son was born that he followed a nurse around the room, holding out his hands, waiting for a chance to hold his child for the tear-filled eyes. She took a moment to catch her breath and smile. Joe is the man that would end arguments with me by responding with nonsense phrases until I couldn't argue with him anymore. Kaylin said goodbye, but not forever. He is my partner and companion for eternity. I look forward to being reunited with him. Chief Rich Ferguson of the Provo Police Department also shared a lighthearted story about Master Officer Shiners. He loved riding motorcycles, said Chief Ferguson. During our interview, we asked him if he had any traffic violations. We knew we had an honest cop in front of us because he smiled and said, kind of. He called him a hero and a leader, someone who had the unique characteristics of being humble while confident. Without reservation, Master Officer Shiners placed himself in a position of danger in an attempt to aid another officer. Master Officer Shiners selflessly sacrificed his life to protect the lives of his fellow officers, said Chief Ferguson. Despite the risk police officers know they take when they put on their uniform every day, Chief Ferguson said the pain of losing a fellow brother in blue is never easy. Just like the military, you understand that there's really two rules in this profession. One rule is good men and women are going to die protecting the peace and civil liberties of everybody. Rule number two is that we can't change rule number one. Following the funeral, dozens of law enforcement agencies escorted Master Officer Shiners to the cemetery in Springville. His loved ones said they find comfort in knowing he joined his sister Caroline in heaven, who passed away years ago. Today's show is dedicated to Master Police Officer Joseph William Shiners. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one of them. Thanks, 
gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. But they're vicious Here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Ah, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. want to welcome everyone that's in the chat room and listening in and watching on Facebook and YouTube and listening in on the studio. Reminder to those listening in the studio on their smart devices and phones, uh, if you want to participate in the conversation, remember to press 1. Otherwise, I will assume that you're just listening in. Curtis, ah, we're waiting for our guest to call in. Our guest we're waiting for is Dr. Rob Cohen, who was recently on Tim Tapp's show. And uh, Tim, uh, I was correct when I thought uh, the um, political leaning of our guest uh, went in a certain direction. He happens to be a John McCain Republican. <laughs> so we'll see how we oh. fare with him when he calls in. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. Well, I'll decide whether or not I'll be gentle or not. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, we were talking about R. Kelly, and you just mentioned that uh, Fox News is carrying the uh, – the news item about R. Kelly being, you said he was indicted or arrested? Oh, he was he was arrested and charged. Uh, I think it's 10 counts right now in Chicago. Oh, wow. He's been arrested. Yeah, this guy, like I wow. said, he's a pedophile. He likes young girls. And um, this, been, this has been known for decades. They just could never prove it. I mean, they did have a sex tape some years ago, but... He denied that was him in the um, in the film, in the video, and uh, somehow, you know, 
he got away with it. I think now they're discovering that um, he paid off some people and intimidated others. So they're looking into that as well. Wow. That does not bode well for him. The only unfortunate thing is that uh, I believe all states have a statute of limitations on sexual crimes. You know, some may be only just a handful of years. Some can be up to two decades. So unless they catch him within that statute of limitations and bring him to trial, he could easily walk on some of these charges. So I guess they have something some, to stick. And if there's already 10 counts, that's, they got a lot. I think um, I think there's no statute of limitations on minors. And I think that's how um, they got Bill Cosby. Yeah, there is. There was a minor. Uh, no, there is. It depends upon the state. Each state is different. Um, there is, because I know New York State, there's the statute of limitations. That's how Lance uh, was able to get away with his, his charge of rape, because he waited out the statute of limitations because he had sex with a minor. If you remember, yeah, the class he ran that. away to Switzerland. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He was married nope. to Sharon Tate. Mm. Married to Sharon Tate. Uh, was it Roman Catholic? Murdered. Was he? Uh, he yeah. yeah, he was married to Sharon Tate, and um, he was away overseas filming when she got murdered by the Manson gang. Mm. Yeah. Well, while we're waiting for for um, our guests to call in, we were talking about the hypocrisy on the left, and Alexandria... Ocasio-Cortez, I managed to say her name correctly this time, <laughs> she's been yelling at everyone that you have to tax the rich even more. They, they have to have their fair share. Elizabeth Warren is now doing this. Bernie Sanders is now doing this. And they're screaming about a special interest being involved in politics and all the money that's flying around and how they stand for the little people. Well, guess what? This was up... Uh, who, who did this report? I, up in Trump train... Trump train news. Say that three times fast. Um, <laughs> she was. <laughs> I'll read it if I, I can. Even I, think about otherwise, it. I'll screw <laughs> this up. I know I will. All right. Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez talks a big game when it comes to government corruption and accountability, but it turns out she accepts lots of money from special interests she rallies against. In what has become the most viewed Twitter video of any politician. Ocasio-Cortez recently played a corruption game during a House Oversight Committee hearing to call for campaign finance reform. In her words, we have a system that is fundamentally broken. We have these influences existing in this body, which means that these influences are here in this committee, shaping the questions that are being asked of you all right now. Well, she's a hypocrite. The same broken system that has worked remarkably well in her favor and makes her re-election likelier each passing day. This is the same Ocasio-Cortez who has received more than 60000 from lawyers and lobbyists, an additional 23450 from the healthcare industry, throw in over 90000 from finance, insurance, and real estate interests, and we have the makings of a savvy fundraiser. Even as she scapegoats the fossil fuel industry and Big Pharma for lobbying Congress, Ocasio-Cortez doesn't appear bothered enough to turn down more than the 46000 in contributions from union officials who support laws that benefit pro-Democrat labor unions. 
I guess those are the kind, right kinds of special interests. When you hear her discuss rich people buying Congress, you're not likely to hear her bring up George Soros, Tom Steyer, or Michael Bloomberg, who flood our political system with hundreds of millions of dollars. Apparently, those interests, because they align with hers, are the right kind of special. The left only wants to fix the broken system for themselves, it seems, in order to benefit. This seems to be the true definition of hypocrisy. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a young lady who would um, flunk Economics 101 with her little green um, agenda. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's oh, cheering man. We're have Amazon leaving. Going on in, the, in the middle of the show. Yeah. When we have Gregory Wright, Wright's going on, we're going to talk to him yeah. about Ocasio-Cortez's yeah. Green New Deal. Uh, he wrote I mean, a really good interesting think- she actually think they have three. They actually, she actually think they have three billion dollars to spend on social programs and things, and and it's not so. You know that was reduction um, in incentive for Amazon to come to New York. She just doesn't seem to know these things, and I'm not surprised being you know educated by the government run you know nope. school system. Someone must have done their homework because they put up a billboard <laughs> that she's not too happy about. Uh, they put up a billboard stating how much money she had cost Long Island City. And uh, I think it was something like, I think it was something like $7 billion in salaries to New Yorkers. That's in salaries alone. Uh, we've got a guest in on the line. Let's bring him aboard. And welcome, Dr. Rob Cohn. Good afternoon, Dr. Cohn. How are you do- doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. Great having you here. Oh, it is <laughs> our our pleasure. Um, I had been listening to you when you were on Tim Tapp's show earlier this week, so I got a good feel of where you're coming from. So we're going to have a little fun. Um, I did notice, okay. and congratulations, you have a new podcast you just launched late last year. Tell us about it. So the Demo Crises podcast, you know, we, we look at a lot of the trends in our world, and they don't seem to be going that well, whether, whether it's whether or not the question of democracy is living up to uh, the challenges of the 21st century, whether our societies, the demographies of our societies, both inside them and as a global human population reaching 7.5 billion, which is unprecedented and causing unbelievable strain on the planet, or whether it's the, so that's the three Demo global demo crisis of democracy, demography, and demoralization. And our, and our position is, you know, there's so many, so much conflicting uh, misinformation on the Internet. It's very confusing, but we believe if we sift through all the evidence in a nonpartisan way and look for the real answers to these challenges, then we can, as a global society, sort of reverse them and avoid making the same mistakes as all the other great civilizations that seem to be doing really well right before they declined. Now, um, when you were on Tim's show, you were talking about autism. And when you look at the numbers for autism, they're staggering. And when I first became aware of autism, um, some close to 30-some-odd years ago, at that point in time, it was only one baby in 10,000. Now, at that time, it seemed alarmingly a lot, and it was. 
but it's now climbed from just one in 10,000 a few decades ago to, the, according to the CDC last year, it is now one in 59 births. Not 5,900, but 59. Shouldn't that be making that a major health crisis in the nation? And this is just in the United States, yeah. one in 59. Yeah. I think that's a great point. No, that, I mean, when, when this, a severe developmental disability is now more, almost 2% of the population, as you point out, that's, that, and in a country of 300 million people, um, that's, that's millions of children. Um, and and they, they require a lot of services, so it's a lot of, lot of health care dollars as well. And, of course, the, the thing is um, – we sort of know, as I was mentioning on the other podcast, we, and we can talk about it here too, we actually are getting a good idea of why the rates of autism are rising, um, but it is a public health crisis, and, and we should be talking about it uh, more. Uh, among, we have many public health crises, unfortunately, in our society, but this is a big one, and a lot of families are affected. And uh, in a way, it's, it's sort of potentially preventable because these reasons that for, the, for the rise of autism are going up and if we could get a handle on them, and, and what I'm trying to do is get the, you know, this, this scientific knowledge is, is well-known in the scientific community, but it's not well-known in the public debate because there's so much other misinformation out there. And so, we're, you know, I'm trying to get out here and say a lot of doctors get on TV and just kind of lecture vaccines don't cause autism. And I think it's more important that we, we explain why we know that vaccines do not cause autism and, in fact, where autism does come from because um, we, we have this information, and that's kind of the doctor's job. Well, before we get into what causes autism, I want to get the listeners out there and those that are watching over on YouTube and Facebook an idea of what these numbers actually are. Um, just to get an idea, as of 2014, when they did the last count, it was 3.5 million Americans living with autism. Um, the increase between 2000 and 2000 alone is 119.4% the increase in children born with autism. Uh, the prevalence has increased by 6 to 15% each year from 2002 to 2010 based on biannual numbers, according to the CDC. The financial cost to U.S. citizens is somewhere between 236 to $262 billion annually. A majority of costs in the U.S. are in adult services, which is approximately 175 to 195 billion, compared to 61 to 66 billion for children. The cost of lifelong care can be reduced by two thirds with early diagnosis and intervention, which is something that we're going to be talking about. Now, you can reduce that by 66 percent if we know how to diagnose it and prevent it. Um, the cost of autism over the life over the lifespan is approximately 2.4 million for a person. 35% of young adults ages 19 to 23 with autism have not had a job or received postgraduate education after living leaving high school. It costs more than six I'm sorry 8,600 extra per year to educate a student with autism. And with this growing number of kids coming out with autism. The school budgets locally, how are, we going to, how are we going to handle it? If you have a small, poor community and you have children, increasing numbers coming into the school system with autism, 
they can't they can't handle it. I yeah I you could mean, not Dr. agree with you more. Um, yeah yeah no I I could not agree with you more. This is a three three point five million children is a lot, and uh, and you're also correct that the the medical services required are high. And you're you're finally you're also right that early intervention right. So the problem with autism is the brain doesn't develop normally, and that's why the children have. Uh, certain um, deficits. They have deficits in social interactions. They don't necessarily share experiences as much. They don't necessarily make eye contact with their loved ones as much. They sometimes have uh, language difficulties, and uh, sometimes they have other behavioral problems, some of which are really tough to to control. You get these kids bouncing off the walls, sometimes doing self-injurious behavior where they hurt themselves. Um, And so because it's a brain development problem, that's where early intervention is key, right? The brain develops so much in the first two years of life. Um, and uh, pediatricians will often tell you that they can start to see signs of autism in that first year of life. They can, they can tell the subtle, the subtle signs of the baby not quite looking at you right, not quite developing um, the way we, we, that they're supposed to. And so if we can intervene, if we can identify these things with better diagnosis, better, better, you know, better healthcare system in general, um, and then sort of get them into early uh, what we would call uh, occupational therapy where they, we sort of help the brain develop um, better, we could reduce a lot of those costs. And, you know, this, uh, this is, you know, we always say, you know, my, I'm a preventive medicine physician, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And when you're looking at a country that's $22 trillion in debt, that that faces not just this problem, but a big problem of an aging elderly population, which is going to require a lot of uh, Medicare dollars uh, because of the Alzheimer's problem, among other things. I mean, we really, you're, I mean, I'm glad you're shining a light on this. Yeah, they were finding, there was a study in Lancet Psychiatry back in 2018 by a Dr. Nordahl, and they studied 159 children with autism ranging from the age of two to four. And what I found interesting is using MRIs, they had noticed they had increased cerebral spinal fluid around the brain, which, which stunts, as you say, the brain's development. Now, a, a number of things could be causing this, causing inflammation around the brain or causing the, the child not to develop. Um, but they're finding now that up to the age of six, they're finding the increased fluid. And they're now uh, saying that the study should be looking at them. Um, what do you say about this? This as a diagnostic tool, and how would people then be able to prevent this increased spinal fluid around the brain? So I would say that increased cerebral spinal fluid around the brain is sort of, is um, is a is a vague diagnostic criteria. You know, our 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 scientific understanding. I mean, I agree. You're you're correct that it's a real finding, but it's probably it's like you see a spot on an X-ray. Right, that spot could be something, or it might not be. And so, um, you know, our, our scientific understanding of the brain is not yet as advanced as our scientific understanding of most other parts of the body. The brain is, you know, I think it has a hundred billion neurons. There are more neurons in each person's brain than there are stars, I believe, in the Milky Way galaxy, or, or you know, something something insane like that. And so, and all these neurons, they all synapse on you know, at least tens of thousands of other neurons. And so you take 100 billion neurons and multiply that by this many synapses or, you know, you get, you get a really complex system that is, you know, some people like to analogize it to a computer, but it's really not a computer. Um, compute, anyway, that, that's a fun analogy to get into another time. But the point is our understanding of the brain needs to advance so much. Um, 
could we use that as screening? Uh, in my medical opinion, you know, screening is a is a is a challenging thing. What you need, what you a good screening test will detect a lot of true positives without a lot of false positives. So, for example, um, uh, prostates are a big deal in men, right? The problem with the the prostate test is it will identify a lot of true cases of prostate cancer, but it also identifies a lot of false positive cases. And so you get a lot of guys that undergo a lot of unnecessary surgery. And so the, the community is really conflicted over whether or not that's a good screening test. So I'm all for um, increased research into a screening test. And, and you know, but, but should, you know, the, the key, you mentioned, I think, that the, this happens at the age of six. The real key for intervention, you know, a kid who has autism, it's going to be pretty obvious by the time they're six years old. The real key for intervention would be at age one, and I think, uh, or under the age of one, at least that's my understanding right now. I'm all for all sorts of research. There's probably things you can do at age of six. Um, there's th- probably things you can do all along the spectrum because, of course, the, the brain develops throughout this whole path. But I, I think the real, the real place we need to get kids screened is under that, in that first year of life and that first 18 months of life, which is where the brain really does a lot of development. Of course, that's when the kid starts talking, et cetera. And so this is a role for uh, the pediatrician. You know, I always tell p- patients and parents, you know, your pediatrician is there for a reason. He has 11 years of training at a minimum. It's his whole, he has a fiduciary responsibility to your child to deliver the best possible care. He can, you know, be held accountable if he doesn't. And so go to him with every question. If you're concerned about risk of autism, if you think your kid's even a little off, like it's your pediatrician's job, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call him. Uh, and, and often they'll reassure you and everything will be fine. But if not, if there is a reason for concern, then you can get out ahead of the problem and prevent yourself and your child a lot of issue later. Well, you know, there's, there's in the articles I was reading, there was a lot of interesting information. And there was an article in Science back in April of 2018 uh, in another study with an international team of researchers that they found a previously hidden type of genetic change associated with autism, deleted and duplicated DNA sequences. And then you tie that into an article in Science of uh, February of last year. Uh, This was done by uh, Michael Gandal, at the University of uh, California in Los Angeles, and they found a remarkable overlap in the gene expression patterns in the brains of people with autism, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. Mm. Now, this brings to, to the front now that we can probably diagnose autism ahead of time if we do a DNA test, but does this open up a possible path for gene therapy to help reverse the effects of autism? Very interesting Wouldn't question. Wouldn't that be a... Oh my God! It would be it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And I think it's possible. So, so yes, you're correct that um, we are getting a better understanding of the genes involved. Autism is uh, is is a so-called two-hit hypothesis. You need two hits: genetic hit, as well as an environmental trigger. It's just like cancer, where you need both a genetic predisposition and then some environmental trigger. Um, and so now there's this very exciting new technology called CRISPR that people have probably heard of, where you can go in and not, not, I don't think we're really doing it in humans much yet, although there was this big scandal in China where somebody tried to do it. But basically our ability to do gene editing and gene therapy sounds like it's really close because of this astonishing new research that um, it, it sort of, it's, it's doing just a bio, biology, what PCR did 25 years ago, which of course won the Nobel Prize. And so 
um, I think I think target yeah because the genetic deletion that you mentioned is probably I, I don't know exactly how many base pairs it is but it's probably not much and it, it you know I can imagine in fifteen twenty years we could we could get out and 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 maybe get in front of this problem and it's a great reason for lots of you know I love research I think research is one of the best things humans do and so uh, it's a great reason to to make sure we're uh, appropriately funding this type of research by these smart people. Now, when we were looking at the uh, causes of possibility of causes, and I, I'm going to bring this thought to the forefront um, because we live in a stress-filled society, and stress can cause inflammation. And inflammation, while a woman is pregnant, could cause the baby to develop autism, uh, a viral infection, obesity. Um, uh, uh, my my word just failed me. Exposure to toxic substances and pollutions. And in today's society, when we rely on so many manufactured things, we live in these uh, urban environments where we're exposed to uh, vehicle exhaust, paints, and other noxious fumes. Could this be something that is leading up to women being more exposed to their baby, possibly developing autism? So, yes, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. That is the prevailing theory right now among uh, people who research this. So we've disproven that there's any link between vaccines and autism. And what we now believe is, is the kids that develop autism are those who have a genetic predisposition. And then while they're in the womb, the mom gets sick in some way, and that causes inflammation in her womb. And you mentioned some of the things that are both rising in our society and have been statistically linked to causing autism. And those are things like, maternal uh, obesity, the taking of certain prescription drugs, um, older mothers and older fathers independently, both, both um, if the mom and dad are old, that each independently increases the risk of autism. Viral infections, we don't know exactly what viruses are the cause yet, but we do know if mom gets a very severe viral infection in the first uh, trimester and that forces her to go to the hospital with a really high fever, that's also going to lead to a suboptimal um, environment for the child's brain to develop in. One, one virus that probably does cause it is, is rubella, um, which is the German measles and was actually fortunately eliminated from the Americas in 2016, um, but it's not been eliminated from the world yet, and, and if people are not vaccinated, they remain at risk of it. Um, that, that actually probably has been linked uh, to, to brain developments, brain um, maldevelopments of some kind. And so, yes, the the prevailing theory is children with a genetic predisposition, and then one of these uh, several factors that we've now mentioned here a couple times would lead to uh, a poor, uh, an inflamed environment in the womb where the child's brain is developing, and that could, in a minority of cases, one, one or two percent, uh, lead to a, a misdevelopment of the brain, which could give rise to the symptoms of autism that we're seeing. And so I'm actually working on a study right now where I'm trying to test the relative contribution. So we know all these things have been linked to autism, but what we'd like to see is, okay, well, what's been the relative contribution of each of these to the rise in autism? And actually that study is possible, and I'm really excited. I'm right in the middle of it, so I, so, but stay tuned. <laughs> well, <laughs> there was another study. Um, this was in uh, MOL Psychiatry, uh, Richard Fry and his colleagues at Arkansas Children's Hospital, uh, they found evidence that children have a certain children have with autism have a biological marker that suggests low cellular absorption 
of the closely related vitamin folate. And they found treating the children helped ease the uh, symptoms of autism in these children. See, the things are happening out there, but the question is, is how do we now go about reducing the number of children that are being born? Because I, 50, one in 59, is that's an epidemic. I mean, we're worried about um, Alzheimer's or we're worrying about cancer, but I think this is a far more serious uh, health hazard here in the United States. Yeah, I like the word. I like the fact you use the word epidemic. I, I think it is an epidemic. An epidemic is is a pro, a medical issue that is increasing and spreading. And so, not all epidemics are infectious. For example, we say we have an epidemic of obesity in our society, which is true. And so, um, uh, all I can say is, you know, this is the, you know, it, it's incumbent on both those in the media space, like yourselves, and doctors like myself, to really work together to sort of get the public messaging right because there is a lot of misinformation out there that suppo- that there are, that uh, that vaccines are the risk of autism and and that's a big problem because in fact the disease, vaccines prevent the diseases diseases that make mom and kid really sick and potentially lead to uh challenges so what you know we're all overworked in our society we're all working way too hard to try to keep our society afloat but we need to work a little harder to, to you know it's really a microcosm of our broader challenges right where there's so many issues in our society that are complex where people want answers and the information is, is challenging to find and there's a lot of misinformation. And the good news is the vaccine one is, is a pretty easy one. The data is so, so clear and uh, really interesting. And so how we overcome this problem of the uh, cacophony of misinformation that we live in is a challenge that really we haven't solved yet. Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that, although we will explore it on the Demo Crises podcast for sure. Um, it has been solved in the past. So in, in the Teddy Roosevelt episode that we, that we do, you know, he faced a pretty toxic media environment, um, just like ours. But um, there, were, there were a few investigative journalism out, outlets that really managed to rise above and communicate to the broad public about the great challenges of the time. Back then it was the challenge of industrial consolidation and the power of the robber barons and the monopolies who controlled essentially everything. And Teddy Roosevelt was really unable to break through until the, he, could, he could persuade through the media uh, the public to really understand and get behind the right solutions. So this is why it's great that you're talking about, you know, we lost a lot. Our media spends a lot of time on really uninteresting things, like how much time have we spent on blow-by-blow shutdown coverage? I mean, for goodness sake, we should be talking about autism, Alzheimer's, the $22 trillion debt, uh, of which you know, we spent a trillion dollars a year on Medicare, which is only going to go up as our elderly population retires. Um, and, and I, think, I think the commitment to substance um, in the media is one, is one way to go about this, which is why I'm enjoying this conversation so much. Well, you know, uh, I'm still out with the jury on the effect of uh, vaccinations because here in the United States, we're the only nation in the world that still uses chicken eggs. There are better ways and healthier ways to make these vaccinations. And I have several friends that are highly allergic to eggs. So they can't go for these vaccinations, but yet they're mandated in any case. And this alone can cause the inflammation in the mother, which would then affect the unborn child. So I am I am not completely on board with you on the vaccinations. I think we should change the method in which we do it. And then let's see if then the autism uh, occurrences then decrease. 
Well, can I tell you how we know that vaccines don't cause autism? Yeah, how is that? Yeah, so, you know, when this, when this theory was put out in the, in the late 90s by a British physician based on a case series of 12 patients um, claiming a link between vaccines and autism, um, the medical community took it really seriously because if that were true, it would be really bad. And it later emerged he stood to make a lot of money from suing the company involved, and eventually the study was retracted, and 10 of his co-authors retracted their support, and he lost his license. But nevertheless, the medical community still took this very seriously. And in order to test it, they, they looked at every child born in Denmark. Uh, it's called the Denmark Study. It was published in the premier medical journal on Earth, the New England Journal of Medicine, 2002. First author is Madsen. Anybody can find it. It's freely available. And they looked at every child born in Denmark from 1991 to 1998. That was 537,000 kids. And at the time, Denmark uh, vaccination was optional. So it's a perfect case study. And they had really good medical records. And so they were able to test whether kids that never got the vaccine had an increased risk of autism. Um, and what instead they found was that kids, yeah, in fact, the kids that never got the vaccine actually had a, a slightly higher risk of autism than kids that did get the vaccine. And in fact, if vaccines caused autism, you would see almost no cases of autism in unvaccinated children. But that's not what we saw. And subsequent studies have all found the same thing. Anybody can go and find these studies. Um, uh, I'm working on a, uh, like I said, I'm working on a study about this right now, and I'm trying to get an op-ed published to, to direct the public to these studies. So, you know, most of, I got all the vaccines. You did too, uh, probably. I mean, we, there, there are, we should be great. I'm, by the way, I have no financial interest in any of this. Um, we should be really grateful that we don't have to deal with a world where polio paralyzes thousands of children a year, including the president. You know, we don't have to deal with measles, which kills one in a thousand children and makes the other 999 that get it miserable with a fever of 105 and a bad rash and sort of wipes out your immune system for a couple of years. We don't have to deal with diphtheria, which causes a slime over the throat, or hemophilus influenza, which killed George Washington. All these diseases are gone thanks to vaccines. Vaccines are one of the few medical interventions that actually save our society money. Every dollar spent on vaccine saves between 3 and $10. There's very few interventions that actually save more money than they cost. Now, your point about chicken eggs, I have heard that before. I mean, I, I, I don't think all vaccines are made in chicken eggs. And I worked in a lab once, you know, you can't just make vaccines out of thin air, right? You have to, you have to make them in something. Um, and so, you know, you could, you could now other, you know, uh, I guess other countries have found other ways to do it, such as um, uh, maybe a plant or a bacteria or something like that. But at the end of the day, you have to make the vaccines in something, um, and you have to do it safely, and that's the job of the FDA to make sure we do it safely. And people that have an allergy to eggs should not get the egg-based vaccine. But the flu, for example, the flu vaccine is made of eggs, but they make a special version of it for people that are allergic to eggs so that they don't get it. Dr. Cohen. Well, we've got about four minutes left. Curtis, we've got four minutes left, and Cal has a question in the chat room. Because we're dealing with this massive migration of illegal aliens coming at our southern border. And over the number of years, as we've been taking these people in, we've seen an increase in measles, uh, a rise in polio, where we that thought we had it completely wiped out. Diseases that we thought we had gotten rid of are now reoccurring in our, our nation. Uh, what's your opinion on the connection between measles and the migration? So right now in the world, there are really big outbreaks of measles happening. So we think we have, a, right now in the United States, we have 127 cases of measles. Sounds bad. In Madagascar, there are 50,000 cases of measles right now. In Philippines, there are thousands of cases. 
of uh, measles. In Ukraine, there's a big outbreak. In Venezuela, we had actually eliminated measles from the entire Americas in 2016. It was declared eliminated. But now, thanks to the breakdown of Venezuela, uh, measles is back in Venezuela, and it's threatening the indigenous communities of the Amazon. So it's a real, it's a real public health tragedy. Um, and, uh, you know, measles, yes, we eliminated it from the entire Western Hemisphere, so it's come back from somewhere. I think it's more likely – I know there's a lot of politics around this. Um, I think this actual outbreak started with a child who had gotten infected in Israel and then came back from Israel to New York. Uh, in fact, we have pretty clear evidence of that. Now, whether the Washington State one is also from the same thing or whether it's from one of these other outbreaks, I think is, is – I'm not aware of the answer to that question. But uh, I, I – yes, I mean, the, we have a lot of problems in our society, and the Democracy's podcast attempts to find the middle ground and the actual evidence to, to, to solve them. Um, the immigration problem may be related. I think it's more likely it's related to the fact that we live in a globalized world where a disease can get on an airplane anywhere on Earth and arrive in the United States, as has happened with SARS or Ebola or Zika or any of these other ones. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. It has been our pleasure. Uh, and I want to tell people to check out your podcast. There's a link to it on our show page. And you know how podcasts work. Most of the people listen to it, listen to it in the archives. So as they're listening to your interview, they can click on it and then go to your website and check it all out. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're we're very proud of season one, which came out. And again, we're all about solutions. And I really appreciate your bringing attention to a lot of these uh, topics. That's that's the role of people in the media like yourself. <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Rob Cohn. Check it out. Uh, Demo Crises is the podcast. You have a blessed day, Doctor. Likewise, you too. All right, check it out, Dr. Rob Cohen, and the link is up on the show page. want to welcome back to the show, always, always a favorite of ours since I was his first, <laughs> Gregory Rackstone, the author of Inconvenient Facts. Good afternoon, Gregory. How are you today? Good. You always remember your first. You were my first interview <laughs> after I published my yes. book. Actually, it was before right I published that- it, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And about a week or two later you ended up on Fox News. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well we can we continue. I was I was just traveled to Dallas last week, uh I was interest, interviewed first on the Blaze T V and then on with Glenn Beck for a half an hour in, interview after that. So it continues. But nobody no one compares to Annie Ubellis. <laughs> I saw that that was up on the blaze, and I want to congratulate you. Oops, I got to push this over. Uh, I got to congratulate you. You have a new mobile app, and I'm holding my phone up to the camera so they can see. I've got the app up on my phone. It's the inconvenient facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, and people can sign up for free and get ten inconvenient facts, and then if they want the rest of it, it's just two ninety nine. Congratulations! This was in the works for quite a while. Yeah, what I wanted to do with Annie, with the book, as you know, I wanted to provide the inconvenient facts, important information that, that people aren't being told, and to empower people with this information about global warming, climate change, uh, to counteract the hysteria. Uh, you know, out there we, we're being told that it's, it's a man-made warming that will lead to catastrophic consequences. Um, I saw just the opposite. I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, 
of how rising temperatures and increasing CO2 are benefiting the Earth and humanity, as you know. And this is just a this app, uh, and it's available both at the uh, at the uh, Google Play and the App Store uh, for both iPhone and Android. But what it does is puts all 60 inconvenient facts, a uh, clearly understood chart, in the palm of your hand, so you can be empowered with this this powerful information. And then each each chart. Uh, it's associated with a short text explaining it. Uh, many of them have videos that I've created, three or four minute videos that go along with uh, with that fact. And then it's important too; you'd be able to click on source. So you can say, "Well, that way, if your idiot nephew Jimmy is at Easter dinner and he tells you that polar bears are going extinct, you can go, "Oh, really, Jimmy? Let's go look at fact number 53," and you can pull up this. Uh, a chart of 60 years of polar bear populations showing them steadily increasing, not going the other way. And little Jimmy goes, oh, what's the source? And you can click on, oh, it's Susan Crockford, the preeminent polar bear expert in the world. Wow. Uh, So it's important to have not just a chart, but where the data come from? What's the reference? What's the source? Where where are you getting that information? And um, so this, I... As you know, I'm a geologist, um, and I've got a lot of geology friends. Just at a, a luncheon meeting yesterday, geology meeting, and uh, these, every one of my friends believe as I do. But even though they're scientists, they they're, they don't talk confidently about this. Because but now I was talking with, we were standing there, three of them were talking to me about it. They all had the app downloaded, and they said, "Wow, you know, I can." It re- they felt empowered now, like I just say, with this information. So if they're questioned, they can point to the chart going, oh, no, here, the warming trend we're in started 300 years ago. Here it is. And uh, and they can talk confidently about that. And that's what, I, that's what I'm going to put in your, uh, your viewers' uh, hands. So they can get that, again, just if they search for inconvenient facts at both the uh, – the App Store, the Google Play Store, uh, and again, we've got we've got great information. I'll link to it on my uh, website at inconvenientfacts.xyz. Yeah, and you know that I've got a link to your website right up on the show page. So people listen to the podcast, nice. they can click to on it, learn learn about inconvenient facts. And in fact, if they put the code in seventeen seventy six, what happens? They get an entire five dollars off of the of the list price of the book. Um, yeah, books. Actually, we we just got our third printing of the book in last month, and thankfully, uh, we the book sales exploded over the actually over the last several weeks. And then, of course, the Glenn Beck Show and the Blaze TV, and now Annie Ubellis uh, will be a a trendsetter <laughs> in pushing book sales. But but we just uh, actually Amazon ran out. Uh, earlier this week of books in their warehouse so they had to wait uh they've replenished now uh so the the sales went up we we, we had 12,000 downloads uh of our app uh in the first two days of last week when it was when we when we went live with it um just had another 550 or, or so just in one day yesterday so people are, are getting this and hearing about it it's really, it's really, really impactful and powerful. Um, but again, you have this information. You can't carry the book with you everywhere, 
obviously, but you can carry you have your phone with you at all times. And uh like I say it's a powerful tool. I, I continue to write commentaries uh uh on that. My last one most recently was published at Town Hall and it was on the World Bank and their uh how they've evolved from uh, an institution that was designed to help poor people to one that's actually hurting them with by oh, funding. I'll get to you on that one later. I got to, oh, okay. I'll, I'll, here, I'm, I'm just taking off and going. I'll, I'll let you guide me. I'll be quiet. Yeah, you're getting up. ahead of All right. I'm over my, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I, over, I over my guarantee. skis. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> I guarantee you read this. This was in the New York Times by Narajay Chokshi. I probably just butchered that. And the title of the article was Colonists Brought Climate Change to the Americas, a study says. This was uh, published on uh, February 7th this month. Did you read this? Because the second I pulled it, I was had it to cut the, it aside. Uh, I put it aside. Was it about the Native American I, genocide? Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I'm, actually, I'm in the middle of That's the commentary I'm diving into right now. I should have it done this weekend sometime. Yeah, what they did was they said that um, after Christopher Columbus and the early uh, Westerners landed on the in the Americas, uh, disease uh, spread throughout North and South America, wiped out and decimated a large percentage of, of Native American populations. And they said that, according to them, there were huge numbers of Native Americans doing uh, growing crops, had agriculture, and when this die-off caused uh, the their their agricultural agricultural uh methods to change and that they 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 couldn't do that anymore and it grew up and uh and caused uh, an increase in carbon dioxide so i've gone back and i've looked at that chart uh, I, I wish i had known i could have sent you the, the charts that i'm 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 looking at but this chart if we look at it co2 levels starting about 6000 7000 years ago were very, very low. They were in the order of uh, oh, 180, 185 parts per million. We're at about 400 now. Um, but it had risen up by the time of this die-off in the 1500s. Uh, it gained about about 100 parts per million. And then they say that a five part per million, I don't want to go through out too many numbers here, but they contend that a five part per million drop at that point caused the Little Ice Age devastatingly cold temperatures. Now, bear in mind, the Little Ice Age was each one of these cooling events like the Little Ice Age. Now, the Little Ice Age went from around 1300, 1250. Uh, it may, might have ended in the 1800s, but this was a horrifically cold period. And during cold periods, we always see the crop failures occur, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. And the Little Ice Age was no different. In that, it's estimated that a third of all humanity perished during that period. Uh, half the population of Iceland died. Remember, the uh, the Vikings uh, disappeared from Greenland, were, were probably died uh, due to the encroaching cold. So this was a bad, bad, bad period. And this study contended that a slight five part per million drop in carbon dioxide led to this all these horrific consequences. Well, now, since that time, we've added about 140 parts per million. So that's what, 
you know, five, whatever that is, it's 40 times as much carbon dioxide. If the, if the climate and our temperature of the earth was that sensitive to that small of a difference in carbon dioxide, well, we should be at about 140 degrees right now. Truth of the matter is, <laughs> these little five part per million swings in carbon dioxide, if we look back uh, over the last six or eight thousand years, they occurred regularly. It was, you know, see, it's kind of going up and down, up and down, up and down, but all, all the while it's been rising. And what's interesting, over that 6,000 year period, as carbon dioxide slowly increased, temp- the average temperature decreased, completely opposite of what. Uh, what we're being told. We, we're being told that carbon dioxide is this regulator. It's the thermometer that you can you can adjust it up and down to um, by adjusting carbon dioxide levels. You can adjust temperature, but it just it, history and history of temperature and CO two just doesn't support that at all. Gregory, yeah, yes, sir. It, it's funny because I, I was reading this and I was just shaking my head. Um, because they are claiming that when we we came in and settled and we spread this disease, that we caused the Ice Age. Um, but when you think about it, if you're increasing uh, the population by migrating here, you're setting up communities, you're planting crops. So if anything, you would be increasing the vegetation, yeah. which therefore would have... Yeah. Exactly. Exactly, and, and Annie, what if if they abandoned their fields, the fields would grow up with trees and bushes, and and that's actually sucking up CO two. It wouldn't cause CO two to decrease. This, this these early young plant growth of trees and shrubs and all that really just it sucks up CO two, and and it's a natural sequestration of CO two in the plants. Um, and at the same time, think about what's going on in Europe. Uh, CO2 is is a global uh, thing. During the same time in Europe, as they're saying this genocide's occurring, well, they were cutting forests down all like right and left across Russia, China, India. Uh, civilizations were gro- growing, populations were growing. Uh, just the opposite was happening. Was what they contend uh, happened in the Americas. So it just it, there's so many on so many levels they have this so wrong. But you know what it is though it's that. But then it's when you for on, on my show we've say, talked about. Good. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to point out that they contradict themselves. At one yep. point they're saying that you know we caused the destruction in the mini ice age, but yet at the second, same instance they're saying that. The new vegetation, because these people left, and as you said, they're no longer tending the fields. So the new vegetation was coming in, new trees and everything. The new vegetation pulled heat-trapping carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and into the land, contributing to the Little Ice Age. That's a huge contradiction. You can't have it both ways. Right, right. But and exactly the opposite was happening throughout the Americas. Throughout the, I mean, throughout the world, and other in Asia and Europe, uh, with uh, people cutting down forests and and grow, growing more crops, and it's uh, it's just so wrong and so it, it's one of these. It's what you know. We we talked about H. L. Mencken's quote of how you know he said that governments had to create these imaginary hobgoblins of alarm, 
And that's what this is. This is a hobgoblin of alarm. By, by that, I mean climate change is, uh, that, that the governments and institutions need to use to frighten the population. And uh, Annie, why in the world would the United States voluntarily elect to, to impose economically crippling things like a carbon tax, a Green New Deal, or Paris Climate Accord? Why would we do it? The only reason is if, if we're frightened to death and we think we're on this precipice of, of plunging into the next climate apocalypse one after the other due to increasing CO2. And so they need – this is just another uh, uh, tool that they use. They need to take everything they can and, and uh, let no possible tragedy go unused in order to frighten the population. <laughs> I don't think people are buying Gregory. it anymore. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Gregory. Uh, Curtis, uh, Curtis, go ahead. Yeah, tell me what's what's more damaging, potentially damaging to the planet? Um, is it man-made pollution, as um, the left like to say, or perhaps a super volcano, you know, in Yellowstone Park? Oh well, now the more well, oh, yeah. that's that the the super volcano in Yellowstone. That's going to be horrific when it finally goes. And it might, hopefully, it won't be for. I, I I don't recall what the last when it went the last uh, uh, that particular one is going to be awful and it will be sudden and violent and it's going to be it's hard to predict everything that might happen there. Um, we have big volcanoes that go off periodically, um, but that one in particular you're talking about could be um, that that would be life ending for for much perhaps. Uh, would certainly impact globally uh, negatively significantly. Uh, but but I but if, Ari, what's what's worse? I I see nothing actually. I look around and I see benefits from increasing CO2 and, and rising temperatures and, and by a So lot. basically, so basically, what nature could do to the planet is is far worse than you know what man could ever think of. Yeah, and I think, and that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and, and and nature's doing to this right now, and by this I mean rising temperatures, uh, the the increasing CO2 is, is due to our burning of fossil fuels. Uh, but again, I see lots of benefits from that, from uh, carbon dioxide fertilization increases, greening of the planet uh, because of increasing CO2. Wa- uh, the water needs of, of plants are much reduced, so we see many, many benefits of, of increasing CO2. The only negative, negative of increasing CO2 is if indeed uh, the temperature of the planet will be driven to uh, extremely high temperatures and will lead to negative consequences. The problem with that theory is we haven't seen those consequences taking place yet. Um, I look at what's actually happening and see uh, the things that are predicted actually declining, things like intense heat waves, droughts, and forest fires in decline and not increasing as predicted. Everyone's jumping in on this climate bandwagon, and uh, President Trump this past week has uh, established a panel to examine how the climate mm-hmm. change affects national security. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's a 12-member panel. But it also includes William Happer, a Princeton physicist, 
who also served as Trump's deputy assistant for emerging technologies. Now, if you remember him, he's the one that gained notoriety, notoriety uh, for saying carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that traps heat, is beneficial to humanity. Oh, how hmm. horrible that man is. Yep. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, Willie Happers on the uh, – or Dr. Happers on the, the – uh, was appointed there, and the headlines were denialist appointed to climate change panel. He's he's not a denier. I've never met – I'm pretty well versed with uh, climate skeptics, having being one myself. Uh, I've never, ever talked to anyone that denies that climate change is happening. Uh, and I haven't met too many people that deny that carbon dioxide increases aren't having some heating effect on the earth. We all acknowledge that, that that's the case. We just think that those – uh, CO2-driven warming are, is quite modest and, and greatly overwhelmed by the same natural forces that have been been driving temperature since the dawn of time. Yeah. Now, um, going back to an article you wrote back in December about Trump and his his handling of these uh, climate agreements, like the Paris Accord. Yeah. Um, and he's he's taking it America first. So is he? doing the right thing because he went and took us out of the Paris Accord. Uh, He went to Poland, I believe, where we had the COP24 uh, conference. Mm -hmm. uh, And he said, "Uh, is he on the right path? Oh, absolutely. The summary of my book, um, the title is uh, The Benefits of Principled in Action. And in that summary ending, my summarizing the entire book, is praising Donald Trump for having the courage to do nothing. Um, because, you know, what the proposals we have out there are, um, it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, they're trying to control the uncontrollable. These are, you know, that's that's the temperature of the earth. They, they actually think that we, we can manipulate and change the temperature of the earth uh, by uh, tweaking carbon dioxide levels. So, to say no, think what think what this took. He knew he was going to come under intense pressure when he pulled us out of the Cl- Paris Climate Accord. Um, he did it anyhow because he knew it was right for America. Uh, the Paris Climate Accord will necessarily uh, economically cripple the United States by uh, imposing uh, carbon taxes, uh, significantly uh, restricting what we can and can't do on private property. Um, it's it's just a, it was a really really bad uh, proposal, and he, he's actually I think that we're going to look back uh, over the next four or five years, and we're going to see other countries falling in line right behind and following uh, Donald Trump's brave lead. And I think we're going to see I think Australia uh, will be the next one. Germany should their their experiment with renewables has just turned horrible um, with them. Uh, there are people I'm helping a, a gentleman out in the UK that's launching. Um, it's called the Committee for um, Lowering the Electricity Prices (CLEP). They're, they haven't launched it yet. I just reviewed their their materials today. Really powerful uh, group that's going to be launching in Great Great Britain, uh, arguing for uh, to move away from um, the renewables and toward natural gas and nuclear energy for electricity. Um, they're focusing on the electricity solely, 
and uh, it's uh, led by a gentleman by the name of Lord Clan Morris, and uh, he's uh, got some good stuff. We we tweaked some of what he was doing. Uh, sent him some review recommendations today for what they're doing. Uh, but all over the earth, we're seeing people protesting and backing away uh, from this this crazy the crazy policies that are leading to skyrocketing electricity and energy prices. We saw it in France uh, with the Yellow Jacket movement. You know, they were set to uh, increase carbon taxes on gasoline. Uh, the farmers don't like that. Well, it's, it's beyond not liking it. They were they took to the streets, um, and you just can't. People of the world can't afford renewable energy, and they seem bound and determined uh, to impose that on us. Angela Merkel uh, in Germany, uh, is she just came out, I believe it was yesterday, with a strong statement supporting Germany's uh, targeted goals for renewable energy, uh, despite German uh, failures of renewables. I mean, it's been, Germany's probably the poster child for for the failures of, of renewables. And you know what the country is on earth that's really done it right, at least in my opinion, in terms of providing low-cost energy, and that's India. Um, just last week, uh, they came out and said, we're gonna, India is going to increase investment by 20% in coal mines. They're opening up 20 new lignite and coal mines. Uh, they're decreasing their uh, targeted percentage of renewables their former target was 55 percent of all their uh, electricity was going to be from renewables they just last week a study came out and said we're going to reduce that to 30 percent because the the 50 55 percent targets just unachievable we just can't do it and what we need to have they admitted that they needed coal-fired plants uh, they would do natural gas if they could, but I don't think they have the capacity for that. Because um, in India, uh, parts of the year just don't work for solar or wind. Uh, the last time I was in India, I was speaking at a conference uh, in the western in Gujarat, the western part of, the, of India, during the monsoon season. It rained, I mean, the entire time I was there. Well, I don't think solar works really well when it's raining just a guess um and during the monsoon monsoon season too they have high winds that uh put some of the wind energy uh, uh, plantations off off limits uh so during they have large parts uh where they go weeks on end where solar and wind uh, energy just don't produce anything and they need uh, they need this coal-fired energy to, to take up the slack. And just last week, they announced that they had achieved 100% electrification for the country of India, that the entire country now has been electrified, uh, providing abundant, reliable, inexpensive energy uh, to their to their citizens. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Because if mm. you figure in India and across you- many of the terribly impoverished parts of the world. Uh, We've got, it's estimated, 2 billion people that are in energy poverty, another billion without electricity, and it's estimated that 4 million people die a premature death due to lung conditions because they're cooking over uh, open fires in their homes like wood. Most of them use dried dung, and that leads to uh, 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 lung disease and death. And if, if you're electrified, now you don't have to do that. 
So we're actually saving the lives by doing that. Yeah, it's amazing how they end up getting the absolutely opposite solution to the problem that we're facing. And we're facing world hunger. Now, this is where I go into the World Bank, where, <laughs> where you were getting to jump the gun on me. Because the oh, World sorry. Bank it was originally set to, to help with world hunger. But somehow or other, they got into the energy business. And... Uh, now, President Trump announced this past month that he's going to be nominating David Malpass to replace the outgoing World Bank president. Uh, go ahead. Have at it, Gregory. Yeah, that's – I got into this this Malpass, interesting, because he's been very uh, opposed to the World Bank. Uh, it's on really two fronts that he's opposing the World Bank. Um, let's talk about the first – well, let's, let's talk a little bit of background of the World Bank. Uh, it was established in 1944. Uh, each of the past presidents since then um, has have been appointed, or uh, they've been Americans that have been basically appointed by the American president. We we pick the head of the World Bank. Uh, the European nations pick the head of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. That's just the way it's worked uh, up until now. Um, but the, the World Bank was established. Uh, to provide low-cost and no-interest loans for developing countries uh, to lift the most impoverished uh, of the world's poor up out of poverty. Um, it's, been, it's been used and abused uh, over the years. Uh, it's put many of these developing nations into huge debt, um, but, but this debt – uh, it's funny that uh, India is the is the number one. We just talked about India is the number one debtor to the World Bank, but they've they've quit under Prime Minister uh, Modi, have quit taking the uh, the loans and have gone transitioned away from the World Bank idea of funding for climate change and renewable projects, um, and they're, they're not taking any more of that money. Um, but the the big thing Malpass his big thing is that. The World Bank continues to fund China, um, and his contention is that uh, the World Bank shouldn't be funding China. Uh, it's no longer a developing nation. So what, what China's doing is taking this no-interest money um, and using that then to lend to other countries, mainly in Southeast Asia, uh, to build infrastructure and then have them indebted to, the, into, uh, to Russia. Uh, that's the one component he wants is to pull away no more funding for for China, since it's not a developing nation anymore. The other half of this is to move away. What, what you're getting to is to move away from funding this uh, this green energy. Uh, when uh, under under the Clinton administration, his appointee, oh, and I don't remember his name, but he was he got us. Uh, he really took us down this path of of moving away from uh, coal-fired and carbon-fired. Uh, uh, energy sources and to start funding these green energy projects, renewables, and uh, it's if we do that, what it's doing. And we talked earlier about India providing reliable, low-cost uh, electricity. Uh, what renewables done is do is to provide unreliable and not abundant and expensive energy, which actually does exactly opposite of what the World Bank's stated goal is, and that's to lift people out of out of poverty. Um, because this 
these renewable energy sources uh, increase increase poverty by uh, making energy sources um, more expensive for the poor, and the poor uh, pay the highest percentage of their meager income on energy as anyone else does. So it's really a, a carbon tax, increasing taxes, increasing expensive electricity is really a, a regressive taxation system. By that I mean it it impacts the poorest among us the most. Because uh, we talk about progressive taxation, that means, of course, that you're taxing the wealthiest. Uh, regressive is just the a- opposite, where it impacts the poorest the most. And that, that's, that's what these policies, the World Bank, uh, is doing. Uh, it's just, it's short-sighted. And once again, we see that Donald Trump and his appointees are moving people away from these misguided policies. Thank goodness. Well, our friend from Canada, Carol, just posted me an article that just went up today, so you may or may not know about this. Up in Canada, the National Energy Board rules that the Trans Mountain Expansion, the pipeline project, should be approved. Oh, now, good. Now, I'm just quickly scrolling through it. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll try to remember to email this to you later on. Let me just make sure I bookmark it so I don't lose it. Yeah. Um, yeah, these but these pipe these anti pipeline like they, good, good. Well, mm-hmm. we're going to definitely have to take a look at this because it's subject to 156 conditions, and mm-hmm. just looking quickly, it's like decrease underwater noise out of concern for the whale, as well as recommendations <laughs> of reducing emissions from vessels. Okay. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So I. I don't really know much about that particular pipeline. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to be honest, I don't, because there, there are a number of pipelines uh, throughout North America that are being proposed right now and being fought tooth and nail by the by – the, uh, these are mainly let's, – let's be frank, this is an anti-capitalist agenda, I believe, um, this, and, and it all focuses on carbon dioxide – and using climate change and carbon dioxide. It's all focused on the demonization of what should be a miracle molecule, the molecule of carbon dioxide, because it all goes back to that, doesn't it? It's, it's the carbon dioxide-driven warming, and we, what we have or is that divestiture movement in college campuses, uh, and the divestiture means, well, we don't want to fund fossil fuel companies why not because they're developing fossil fuels which when burnt create carbon dioxide um to leave it in the ground movement and there's the, the really damaging and it's been brilliant on their part this this anti-pipeline movement uh, where anytime a new pipeline for just about anything uh is proposed we fight it tooth and nail uh, and if they can just stop a small part of that pipeline they can stop the whole thing because uh, of course it doesn't it doesn't make sense to build all but two miles of pipeline. You need to get it from the beginning to the end. Uh, and we've seen that in New York, big pipeline projects coming from my home area uh, to take natural gas uh, out of the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, huge, huge, largest gas reserves of the world are are right under my feet right here in Pittsburgh uh, by far. Um, and uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia 
have gigantic natural gas reserves uh, that can power the world uh, for decades. Uh, but New York has has stopped pipelines going to be able to produce natural gas and move it up into the North New England states, into New York. Uh, so whenever we get these really bad cold snaps, uh, if they if they're for extended periods, they're, you're going to see their well, we did during this, this polar vortex. I believe their natural gas prices, the, the daily rates, what they call the spot price, uh, just blew up. I think it was 20 or 40 times as much as what it was before. So these, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. You know, they have the excuse that, oh, you're going to, if the pipeline comes across like they did in Alaska, it's going to stop the migrations. You know, we're going to see the polar bear is going to die. The caribou are not going to be able to migrate to their, their feeding grounds. Oh, the seals are going to get hurt by this. And none of that has happened. The exact opposite has happened. And then now the uh, pipeline that's coming across the United States that we've been trying to get built. Oh, it's going to cause so many problems, but it leaks and this and that. None of that has happened. And wherever these pipelines have gone in, the exact opposite of what the gloom and doomsayers are saying happens. Oh, we have millions of miles, literally, of pipelines across North America right now. And it, there's probably a pipeline very close to somebody shaking their head, and they don't even know it, that are opposed to this. And they have no idea that there's pipelines all through there. Yeah, we got to make sure that the safety is 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 great, um, especially for these high pressure pipelines. Um, but that's how we we transport, um, and they're they're trying to stifle and stymie any anything and everything. And just actually today it was announced that I'm in Pittsburgh again that um, these train loads of of crude oil coming from the west, uh, from the Permian Basin, from Canada. Uh, they wanted to make some changes to the railroad route to, to allow double-decker uh, trains, and, and the environmentalists are just, you know, they're, they're going to shut it down. They're not going to allow that um, just because they think they can. Um, so we're, we've got uh, this, what they're doing is, is using anything and everything in their, in their arsenal and their quiver uh, to stymie any energy projects that, or developing carb, uh, carbon-based fuels. Uh, and they don't even like this Green New Deal. They don't even like uh, uh, nuclear, I mean, which is probably uh, the best alternative for, for electricity. Um, uh, you know, hydroelectric is fantastic, but, of course, you have to create dams and you'll have to displace people to do that, but that's, um, that's a wonderful uh, uh, carbon-neutral, carbon-free energy source that would last uh, probably hundreds of years for these hydroelectric dams. Gregory, whatever, no, it's funny whatever, happened, to the, whatever happened to the ozone issue that I we to hear about so much? Yeah, I was just, I'm, I'm going to beg off on that because I'm not, I don't like to talk about what I don't know. I know enough about ozone to be dangerous, okay? And I don't want to say I prefer not to talk about anything that I haven't categorically know up and down. And ozone is that. It's one thing I'm, I'm going to learn more about, um, but I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm not going to touch it because I'm not I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm, I'm really not qualified. I hate to say something that was incorrect. 
All right. Well, I guess I guess it's a good thing because um, it must have healed itself because we don't hear about it anymore. So I guess <laughs> yeah. no, no news is good news. Yeah, when that is a fact, boy, that went away quickly, didn't it? Yeah, and there's uh, uh, there's uh, there's I don't know about that, but there's I mean every day we see more uh, radical uh, things out there, just crazy, crazy things, and, and uh, you know polar bears. You know, swarming a, a Russian town with uh, blamed on lack of ice, and just actually the opposite of that uh, is occurring. Cow farts, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, Very yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, bovine flatulence. Uh, the gift that keeps on giving, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And you got to remember, when she first got to Congress, what was the first thing she did? She camped outside of Nancy Pelosi's office with the Sunrise Movement, a nationwide coalition of young liberals concerned with climate change, in order to send a message to Pelosi. Now she comes up with this Green New Deal. Gregory, she's yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. Well, the... Yeah, her Green New Deal is dangerous. It's if if you had read what the Green Party's proposal was for the Green New Deal, you would be going, "Oh my goodness, what um, what a, what a crazy bunch!" The original proposal was to provide um, jobs for everyone. I think this this the, the proposal they laid out actually does that is uh, a living wage for anyone wanting to work, and in fact they're under their frequently asked questions, they said even those unwilling to work were going to whatever they were going to get paid something. Uh, but but really, uh, what this is a stalking horse for socialism, for communism, you know, totalitarianism, whatever you want to call um, this. It's it's really anti-capitalist. Uh, they want to stifle and uh, lift up. Uh, this through really a socialist manifesto that's masquerading as environmental policy, um, and it's you know what we're I, I think it, I think it's an overreach on their part. Um, it's exposing who they really are uh, with this uh, you know it's jobs, it's providing uh, uh, wealth redistribution, higher taxes. Uh, they're going to transition away from a carbon-based system. They don't want you driving. They don't want you to drive to Home Depot. Okay, what the the original proposal called for an entirely new mass mass transit system, um, and moving away from unnecessary private transportation. Well, unnecessary private transportation is is a uh, that means you driving to to Home Depot or Lowe's to pick up some two by fours. Well, you you know you you have to take mass transportation for that. Under their scenario, um, it's, it's 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 just crazy. They want to move away from uh, gasoline, diesel, natural gas completely, and go to a complete non-carbon. That would be electric cars. And they have this vision that they think that renewables, and they listed the four renewables: wind, solar, geothermal, and tidal energy. Um, and they just you just can't get get there from here. India tried it. We just talked about what their results were. They said that their goal of 55% was unachievable. They just couldn't do it. 
uh, and they've scaled it back, and they don't even think that the new goal of 30% in India is achievable, and they went after it hard and heavy. Uh, we just can't do it. We need this base load, even with wind and solar. You need um, this stable base load, which, which is either um, nuclear, coal, or gas, and ga- nitro- natural gas is really the only one of those three that works with wind and solar because with a natural gas-fired electricity generation, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it's the only one that can be cycled up and down quickly. In other words, if, oh, you need, we're, we're going to need, uh, Annie, I'm going to call you up, you're, you're the manager, we've got a need coming up, we're gonna, we need another uh, 53 mega, megawatts of energy coming online in 30 minutes. Okay, and you flip the switch and you have your natural gas-fired plant that can ramp up and go. Uh, you can't do that with nuclear coal because it's, it's, it's like kind of trying to turn a, uh, an aircraft carrier on a dime. It just doesn't happen. So natural gas is the only uh, really one that works very well with the, 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 the changing needs that you have for wind and solar because when the wind stops blowing and the sun stops shining, I don't know if you know that, but the sun stops shining every day at at dusk, you know, so we go through approximately 12 hours a day that you don't have, you have zero uh, solar and you need something to replace it because uh, we really don't have a battery system uh, that's efficient that can capture the large uh, volumes of electricity and store it that, that's needed for, for the population. Well, isn't that the exact problem Puerto Rico had? They try to switch everything over to wind but for some reason, they didn't get it hooked up to a base load, so nothing was working. Yeah, well, they, they, Puerto Rico's the main problem they have now is just getting the electricity system back up after the hurricane tore through the island. Um, and I think we've still got power crews from our area down there working, trying to get the electricity reestablished. What's it been a year and a half later? Uh, I think it was Maria that came through and tore up the island. Yeah, so this just doesn't make sense. And no, I hate windmill, wind turbines. I hate them. I think they're they're ugly, disgusting. They're dangerous. Uh, they're uh, they're a blight on the landscape. We we used to have scenic vistas, and now uh, they're perched on the mountaintops. And and in Pennsylvania here, the the game commission controls a large amount uh, of of mountain ridges that are prime targets for for wind projects and they've they've announced here that they have actually instituted a ban on any uh, wind turbine projects they've never approved one and uh and it's it's estimated that 30 or 35 percent of uh, industrial size wind farm potential is controlled by the game commission and they said no way they said it's dangerous it's it's harmful to, to our uh our wildlife and to the plants, and it's dangerous for any hunters in the area uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, up, up in, in our neck of the woods, wouldn't be so much down where you are um, in sunny Carolina, but uh, up here with the wind in the winter, we have ice accumulation that builds up on these things. Uh, and if you can imagine these these blades, they look like they're slow turning, but they can get up to uh, 200 miles per hour at the wind t- wind wing what are they called wind tips and they can throw ice huge block you know that accumulates for 
hundreds of yards. Uh, you don't want to get hit with one of them. So it's a, it's a danger. Um, uh, there would be huge areas that would be off limits to. Uh, I know most people that don't know about our state, Pennsylvania, imagine it to be built up, but virtually all of Pennsylvania is is forested, and uh, you have to go many miles without finding a human. Yeah, well, it, it just, there's studies that have been out that people that live near these wind farms or have a wind turbine nearby complain of uh, nervousness, mental health problems, uh, because of the vibrations these wind turbines set off. So they're not yeah. healthy for humans. Yeah. It, it's and causing there's, a lot of health issues. Yeah, and there's they do kill birds and bats, although that's somewhat overrated. The birds that they do kill are the uh, are the birds of prey, the eagles, hawks, you know, red-tailed hawks, eagles. Uh, in our area, it would be bald eagles, not golden eagles. Out west, it's mainly golden eagles. And uh, uh, they do kill those. Uh, of course, if we talk about birds being killed, then you know what the number one killer of birds is. It, it's your, 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 your kitty cat there that... Uh, <laughs> it's the main predator. It is by far. I mean, cats kill. Uh, it just—it's an overwhelming number of birds compared to compared to uh, uh, wind turbines. But I think if you—you're not going to find too many cats that are going to kill a red-tailed hawk or a golden eagle. Um, that would—that would be one bad. Am I allowed to say badass on, on the radio or the TV? I just did, so I just. But that would be one mean cat. If you could kill, if you could take, so it's the, it's these bald eagles, golden eagles, uh, red-tailed hawks, the big ones, uh, that predominantly are being killed by these things because they're they're just floating along and all of a sudden flap, um, and the bats, uh, endangered Indiana brown bat, uh, east of the Mississippi, uh, they're they're killed actually not by being struck by the blade, but there's a a, a severe pressure drop uh, that is behind the blade and it that's what really leads to these bad deaths. Wow. Wow. And people think that this green energy is so clean. Uh I've also heard that the uh, solar panels end up becoming toxic waste when they break and you have to replace them it's considered toxic waste. So how good is a solar panel if you want to have a clean environment if the very item is a danger to the environment? Yeah, and also the uh, rare earth minerals that are mined mainly in China, um, the horrific environmental uh, degradation that goes around those things. It's and there's a huge there are huge amounts of of uh, rare earth mineral minerals that need uh, that are consumed by both the wind turbines and uh, by the solar panels. Uh, huge, huge, and it's just. Again, the environmental degradation, primarily in China, with the mining of these, is awful. Huge areas uh, where they mine these are are just devastated. Now, it's what is also found out because there's a huge uh, solar farm on the way up to Columbia here in South Carolina. <laughs> but people were complaining about the rise in temperature. You got to remember these solar panels are reflecting the sun back, which is causing an increase in the ground and air temperatures. They're worried about yeah. global warming, but these very solar panels are creating global warming. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and the only reason, again, that they're moving to solar panels and wind is this aversion. They're, they're stating categorically, we have to do this, we have to raise energy prices for everyone and restrict our, our freedoms is because the uh, carbon dioxide increases are are uh, significantly warming the planet and leading which will lead to catastrophic consequences uh, but if we look if we and that's why it's dangerous just to look at, at such a tiny time frame that they use they say well uh, the last uh, four years were four of the hot, hottest years ever recorded and you know what they're right but when they say ever recorded that only goes back to 1979 when the first satellite was launched, uh, or, or the thermometer-based record that goes back to 1850, um, the longest, and, and they would be right, because we're in a warming trend, right? If we're in a warming trend, then we should be getting slightly warmer every year. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, the significant rise in temperatures uh, in the last half of the 20th century occurred from the late 70s until 1998. And since 1998... Now it's been, what, 20 years, 21 years of, of virtually flat temperatures. There's been, and even the, I, the Intergovernmental panel, panel, panel on Climate Change says there's been no significant, uh, statistically significant increase in temperature since 1998. Uh, so we see that, um, uh, that, that, that actually uh, that, that, that this temperature uh, is, is is needs to be looked at the bigger picture. And if we look at the bigger picture, uh, we see that, again, this warming trend that we're in started uh, in the year 1695, in the depths of that horrific little ice age, the cold, cold temperatures uh, that we see there. Uh, and it's just this blessed warmth that's lifting us up out of that. And when, when I've been on in the past, you know, we've talked about the historically looking back through thousands of years of human history, how how the how there's a great correlation between the rise and fall of temperatures and the rise and fall of civilizations, and that during each warm period, like we're in now, civilizations thrived and prospered. The, you know, the Akhenaten in Egypt back in the Minoan warm period and the first Mycenaean, rise of the Mycenaean in the, in the Mediterranean during that time, and then the Roman warm period with the Roman, uh, Roman Empire rising up in the first great uh, empires in China, uh, but between each one of those, it got cold and it was devastating. It was characterized by famine uh, and mass depopulation. These cold periods, and again, that's just opposite of what we're being told. We're being told that increasing warmth will lead to devastation and, and crop failure, famine, and mass depopulation. When historically, that ain't happened. It's not happened. Just the opposite has occurred through time. Um, so if the glaciers, we need to be aware of cold decreasing temperature, not increasing temperature. Yeah, because in the 70s they were saying, oh, it's climate cooling. And now, a couple of decades later, no, it's climate warming. Which is it? Is it cooling or is it warming? It doesn't turn well, on a dime. Now, yeah, well, kind, right? kind of it, it, uh, kind of it does, Anne. It, 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 we go through. It's been warming in fits and starts. It goes, it goes up, then it goes down a little bit, and goes up, and it goes down a little bit, and it's like two steps higher and one step back. 
it, just when we started adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in earnest was about oh in that post World War II economic boom in the mid 20th century. At that point, from 1944 to the late 70s, there was a 33-year period of cooling that you just referenced. Okay, as we were adding, just when we started adding a bunch of CO2, we go into 33-year cooling event. But then in the late 70s, uh, there was a, a pretty steady and significant rise in temperatures, again, until 1998. And it's been fairly flat since then. Uh, but if we look over 300 years, it's warmed about a degree and a half Celsius or so for the last 150 years. Um, it doesn't sound like much, but it's it's enough to make uh, uh, somewhat significant changes to uh, crop growth and, and uh plant growth. Uh, Dr. Tim Ball reports that his study indicates that the the tree line in in Canada over a 200-year period um, moved northward 200 kilometers. So that gives you an idea what increasing temperature uh, would do to things like that. That's pretty significant. Um, And so we see that uh, even in the longer period, if we look back to the end of the last ice age, uh, there were nine other warming periods very similar to what we're in right now, but all of those ended uh, with much higher temperatures than what we have right now. Uh, so we can look through history and see that um, these warming periods have occurred, uh, polar bears survived, uh, much warmer temperatures than what we are right now. Um, and And it's been highly beneficial historically through time. Well, Gregory, don't well, you think that sometimes the they um, take? Do you well, think that sometimes they take this to the extremes? In other words, like in the seventies, I know you say it was warming, but what was in the news and and say like Time Magazine was the coming of the ice age. Now, I'm I'm sorry. Could you repeat that, please, Curtis? I was saying. Isn't it true that um, sometimes the media take these things and run with it to the extreme? Like uh, no. back in the no. 70s, they were <laughs> talking about the, <laughs> the coming of the Ice Age. <laughs> well, you said that the media sometimes does this to the extremes. You're absolutely incorrect. It's not sometimes. <laughs> they do it all the time. All right? So, you know, get that right. But, yes, they do. <laughs> um yeah, the, we will in the 70s for the most part we were, we were in a cool we were at the end of a cooling phase. Uh the very late 70s is when we started warming up. But yeah, the media runs with it. It's this um it, it's just crazy that so much of what we're being told when we hear in the media is completely opposite. It's 180 degrees uh out of out of out of kilt from what is actually happening. Cuz what I do in my book uh, Inconvenient Facts is to uh, I look at what's actually happening today, uh, and what we hear in the media are predictions that are based on failed climate model models that overpredict warming. We know that the climate models used uh, overpredict warming two and a half to three times too much, and these are the models that are used by the IPCC and others, uh, and for the Paris Climate Accords and this Green New Deal that they're basing. Uh, what they want to do uh, and cripple our economy based on failed climate models. I like to look at what's actually happening in the real world, uh, and I use forest fires, as you know, Annie, a lot, because it's so. it was what got me hooked into this. Whenever I realized that 
what we were being told about forest fires and drought was just stark. It was so evident. And all the data pointed to forest fires being a long-term decline, uh, and all the experts agreed to it, which is, again, completely opposite of what we hear, we hear in the media. Uh, Jerry Brown in California talks about this fires running wild. And, and you know what? In, even in California, the number of fires have decreased by about 50% over the last 30 years. Now, granted, the area burned has increased. So that means that necessarily each fire is about twice or more uh, as large as it used to be, and it's probably a lot more intense. But that's a forest management problem. That's not that's not a, a global warming or climate change issue. We've we've mismanaged our forests, uh, particularly in the West, uh, and the U.S. Forest Service is, is to blame. Uh, so we've got you know that we've exacerbated this this fire problem, but it's not due to global warming. I got a question for you. Uh, this is actually coming from the chat room. Uh, do you know Dr. Patrick Moore? I think I've asked you that once before. I don't know him personally. Um, he sounds a lot like me, or I sound a lot like him. Uh, I looked at I when I first I listened to some. I said, "Man, my wife looked at me. She goes, wow, you guys are saying the same thing.' Yeah, Patrick Moore was, I believe, the head of Greenpeace, was he not? I think he was a founder." Um, he's gone completely the other way uh, in terms of we're, we're being lied to, uh, what, what they're predicting aren't going to happen. It's, uh, yeah. So, yes, Patrick Moore is uh, uh, a very, very communi- good communicator, uh, espousing a lot of what I'm, I'm saying and just uh, showing the facts aren't, aren't what we're being told. It's funny because you mentioned the moment you mentioned Greenpeace, everything clicked back in. I was trying to remember where I knew that name from. Uh, yeah, I think I've had him on the show in the past. So, yeah, very, very well spoken. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he would be a great yeah. uh, guest. Yeah. He's very. Uh, uh, he, yeah, he, he's he's very uh, good proponent of climate skepticism by far, and he, he brings the he brings the street cred too. Of being, you know, a, a one-time uh, world-recognized environmental wacko who has seen the light. Um, so no, he's, you know, like I say, he's got the street cred that, that he earned early on with, with uh, I believe, I'm pretty sure it was a creation of one of the founders of Greenpeace. Yeah, he's asking about a lecture where I'll send you the link to the YouTube that he gave back in 2015. Should we celebrate carbon dioxide? So I'll, I'll see you yes. for that. You may have seen the it already. The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you see it? Yeah. Oh okay. no, no. I'm saying I was answering this question. Should we should we celebrate carbon dioxide? The answer is yes. And I'm uh, I'll send you <laughs> a, 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 a picture of the back of my SUV with my iHeart CO2 bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, you got to get me one. <laughs> oh yeah. I just was down, uh, I traveled to Texas last week. I gave a three-hour uh, seminar on on the inconvenient facts. I think I called it the cold, global warming, the cold, hard facts, and uh, three hours. Um, but I had a guy that emailed me yesterday that just was, oh, 
just the hateful stuff that I get. It's um, these people are, it's it's beyond, uh, it's beyond crazy. It's. I uh, said you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, the delays you're causing may never be recovered. If the children of the world could speak with one voice, they would put your, you in jail for genocide. Get the <laughs> H-E double hockey sticks out of this world. You don't deserve to be here. So that's an example of, of how they communicate. And, uh, yeah, these people are, it's, it's a religion to them. And, there and I, I email you know the science deniers are people like him that they will absolutely they can they can brook no no science or facts that make Holland question their their religion of man-made catastrophic warming there can be no tolerance for it and there will never be a debate um, well maybe I'm not saying never but because uh, in their mind the science is settled and if the science is settled uh, there's no there there can't be a debate because there's nothing to debate. Because if they have to, if if they agree to a debate, then they've admitted that it's not settled, so they can't do it. If you follow me, it's this catch twenty two, and, and it, they, it won't be done. So it's a, it, it's crazy. I'm I'm trying to get the word out there, and again we go back to this uh, inconvenient facts app, which I think is powerful. That your 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 people viewing and listening can can go get in if they search at the at the uh, Google Play Store or the App Store for inconvenient facts, or, or uh, I've got a lot of good information similar to what we talked about today on the website inconvenientfacts.xyz uh, to go there. Again, we've, we're getting a large, large number of people uh, all over the world downloading uh, this app for, for their use. Uh, our number two countries, uh, lots from Canada and lots from Australia. Uh, and actually, there's, there seems to be somebody in India. Quite a few people in India are very interested in this as, as well. So it's, it's interesting to get up and track it every morning. Okay, well, where are the apps? How many we, how many were downloaded? What are, you know, where, where, where are the where are the hot spots around the world that people are? Because I think what's happening are people are get this and then they talk to their friends and neighbors and go, whoa, look at this. Um, so uh, yeah, you're helping spreading this information is great. Well, you know, as people get hit with these carbon tax and other taxes and, and the EPAs and other organizations that tell you you can't do this, you can't do that, and they take a look at that and they say, wait a minute, what is really, really behind this? And the billions of dollars that are in the climate hoax bottom line, it's about the Benjamins in the, the end result, controlling you, the citizens, and the Benjamins. Yeah, yeah. It's about it's. You know, I, I get that that question a lot. You know, why are they doing it? Um, and that's any of your listeners would be just as qualified to make a judgment as I am. Uh, I provide the science, the facts, and the data to show how wrong they are, and that's a lot easier than you think, actually. Um, but then to answer that question, why are they doing it? Why are they spreading this misinformation? And again, I go back to fires because um, they just flat out state uh, in the last national climate assessment that was released at the end of November um, 
the assessment just flat out stated that fires were increasing uh, because of climate change. And and the one chart they had in that and was uh it was it was a chart showing area burned in the United States. It wasn't sourced or referenced. They didn't really explain it at all. Uh, I found I went back and I, I I pieced it together. They took the last thirty or forty years of area burned in the United States and neglected the data that went back to nineteen twenty eight that showed that we're actually in a huge decline in the area burned in the United States. Um, so it's, you know, they, they actually, for the National Climate Assessment, they just flat-out cherry-picked data, and they didn't show the number of fires in the United States, which which are, are insignificant. We're about 20% as many fires uh, in the United States as there were 80 years ago, which is a big number. You know, uh, right here in South Carolina, I picked up the newspaper the other day, and they had the emergency management of South Carolina was in a tizzy because when Hurricane Flores came through here and devastated and caused so much flooding, they weren't prepared. And they weren't prepared because of climate change. Hello, we are a coastal community. Yeah. Hurricanes do occur. Why weren't you prepared? Knowing that full well. Yeah, and, and but if we they look- blame it on climate change because they were not prepared. Why was it blamed on climate change? Well, because they could. That's why. But um, the fact of the matter is even the IPCC agrees that hurricanes are not increasing. And if you look at the the, – I've got a hurricane page on my website. Uh, You can see that there's a pretty good case that can be made for globally uh, hurricanes and tropical storms have actually been declining. Uh, And even the, the NOAA agrees that the number of hurricanes are not increasing. Uh, their top uh, hurricane expert, Christopher Landsea from NOAA, uh, great name for a hurricane guy, right? Uh, Landsea, but um, he he estimates that uh, that the intensity of the hurricanes may be increasing, and he he puts the number at about one to two percent. Well, I don't think if you were in Katrina and it, it, the storm came ashore, sure you could tell the difference between. 140 miles an hour and 141 miles an hour. Uh, you know, it's 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 a negligible increase due to due to global warming and intensity. And again, for sure, the numbers haven't uh, increased. In fact, when Harvey made landfall in Houston, there uh, it, we'd gone 12 years without en- having any uh, major hurricane make landfall in the United States, and that's the longest. Uh, period since NOAA's been keeping records going back to 1850. So we had just gone through 12 years of no major hurricanes making landfall. Uh, so when we did have three strikes, it, it seemed like a lot. Uh, but in fact, uh, and again at the NOAA site and on my website you can find that, I've got a, a chart from NOAA uh, showing landfalls, historic landfalls of all hurricanes in the United States. Uh, showing that they've actually been in, in a decline, and you could probably argue it's a it's a significant decline of, of of landfalling hurricanes in the United States. So, again, it's just opposite of what the climate alarmists will tell you of uh, increasing hurricanes and increasing intensity. And tornadoes, again, extreme uh, weather, tornadoes definitely have been in decline, uh, as have uh, Tornado-related deaths have plummeted over the last 80 years. Of course, that has a lot to do with 
warning systems and, and being well, Greg, prepared. I'm waiting for my next guest to call in. I'm waiting for my next guest to call in, so hang out with us here. Um, we have Warp in the chat room that's asking uh, if you know anything about Agenda 2030. You was called previously Agenda 21, and how does this affect what we're talking about? Well, the Green New Deal plays right into that um, with, with what they want to do to control people. Um, I haven't heard about the 2030. I've not looked at that. Uh, but, yeah, the old Agenda 21 is uh, we're fighting that uh, here with things like the smart meters on the homes. Uh, in fact, I just shipped out uh, three books uh, to a friend that's going to testify in our state capitol on Monday uh, concerning the smart meters being uh, – he, he actually was so opposed to it. He, he refused to let them absolutely put one on his home. They actually came out eventually and cut off. They disconnected his power, and now he's com- – and he said, fine. He's completely off the grid um, and and doing just fine, thank you. Uh, but uh, uh, it's uh, – you know, but th- this is a – it's all about power, control, taxation, and uh, – you know these these things they're trying to do will mean that you're going to have a loss of freedom as well. Well, isn't that what the whole point is—to force us into urban areas? So those of us that are independent and live in the suburbs or in the rural areas that can grow our own food, they can't control us if we do that. Which is why oh my Cortez does not want us to own a car. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I've got a, actually my blog that I've got on my website. Uh, I I wrote one on what the Green New Deal will will mean to my family, and that was before it was actually proposed and and, and submitted. What I did was look at what the Green Party's proposal for a Green New Deal would be, and uh, uh, what they what they looked at was it was it was pretty pretty bad. And this is but and that's really what they wanted uh, when you go and look for uh, uh, things like that and see what what what's the what's their uh, what's the real agenda here? And uh, you know, with this Green New Deal, it was the original one. Um, it was complete. Well, it's very similar in terms of what we're going to do with coal fire or, or carbon-based energy. They were, they both of them call for a complete transfer um, of of away from uh, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, and into this, these renewable forms. Um, but uh, what they in the new what what they proposed too they admitted that there would be four million people put out of work in the conventional energy sector my my son in law being one of those um, uh, but they were gonna uh, but it was okay because the three point nine million new jobs that would be created uh, building this renewable energy infrastructure uh, and converting to clean power sources. Um, so it's also going to require what they had said was require replacing non-essential means of transportation with this new modern mass transit system. Um, so that's what they wanted, a comprehensive national mass transit program. So uh, I guess my, my son-in-law could, get, could, instead of having a high-paying energy job, he could become a bus driver, right, you know, driving people around. Uh, <laughs> so they were going to guarantee uh, – also complicating things too. They were going to the original Green New Deal was going to 
called for a, a 50% reduction in military spending and closing bases around the world because, you see, uh, that we wouldn't have to fight wars for oil anymore, so we don't need a robust military anymore. That's how, that's how delusional they are. Um, uh, you know, that's crazy. Um, but uh, uh, they wanted to end their, their, the proposal also uh, originally said that they wanted, and they stated that they will end unemployment in America once and for all, and they were going to guarantee the job at a living wage for every American. Okay, um, they were going to this. The original pro- proposal too included uh, forgiving all student loans for college, uh, providing, and the new the new proposal that's actually out there I think does call for uh, college, free college for everybody. Um, so it's crazy. And the original deal also called for uh, forgiveness and renegotiation of home loans through the establishment of a new uh, federal mortgage bank that was going to be enacted. I mean, it's just it's yeah, uh, like again this 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 Green New Deal is a socialist manifesto manuf- masquerading as environmental policy. Um, but we talked again earlier. Uh, we didn't quite go there the whole way, but I think they've overreached with this. Any rational, sane person will look at this and say, "You're crazy, right? You, right, Curtis? I mean, anybody looking at it can can look at this and say this is unattainable. It's not possible, and it's going to harm everybody. Any any rational, sane person will look at this. So, but yet they're they're stating that oh no no this is this is something we want to do i think it's very similar to how they've overreached on the abortion issue um you know or is it what what's the abortion 50 50 maybe in terms of but you know it's not 50 50 for late-term abortions the day before babies delivered they've overreached there and people say can now see what they really are proposing and now with this green new deal they say aha this is really this isn't about the environment. This is about promoting socialism and communism and taking down the uh, and remaking the economic system of the United States. Uh, we've heard Ocasio Cortez uh, talk about that many times. Well, as you know, the left, they do things um, incrementally and they are very patient, you know. Yeah, in this case, though, they might be taking a. a a page out of uh, Donald Trump's uh, Art of the Deal, and I think they're going to what they're what they're doing maybe is is going. Oh, we want all of this, and if they want to get part of it, okay, that's a good start, right? Because that's what that's what Donald Trump does, and that's what he proposes. Ask for the world, and then settle for, and know what you'll settle for. Um, but we've incrementally been moving. You're talking about incrementalism. Uh, Incrementally, the country has moved towards acceptance of of carbon taxes. We've seen more and more uh, Republicans uh, get on board uh, with a with a carbon tax. A lot of those come out of the the old globalists out of the George Bush and, and you know, both Bush's administrations. People like James Baker, George Shultz, Trent Lott uh, have all all gotten on board with the need uh, for America to impose a carbon tax. Um, it's crazy. And they're calling it a free market solution uh, to solving the climate change problem. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, in fact, just this year, earlier this year, uh, there was a, a resolution in the House of Representatives uh, 
condemning uh, carbon tax. Uh, and for the first time, uh, there were six Republicans that signed on that refused to sign this resolution condemning a carbon tax. Uh, previous uh, ones over the last several years uh, had never had any uh, Republicans that didn't sign on to it. So it's you know, it's gaining acceptance. Um, we just need to fight it with uh, information that, that tells us that um, the, the warming that we're seeing, the changes in temperatures are not man-made primarily, not driven by carbon dioxide, but rather the same natural forces that have been driving temperatures since the dawn of time. Uh, and it's not catastrophic. It's, it's highly beneficial. Yeah, there's so much that's in this green bill. And you wrote a great article, which people can find on your website, which is inconvenientfacts.xyz. Matter of fact, uh, one of the, the uh, people in the chat room just went on to the uh, site looking for your stuff. But um, they want to increase uh, a higher rate of tax of 70% on income on this. And how does that happen? do anything with green energy? Oh, wait a minute. How are you going to pay for this green energy bill? By higher taxes on people. Hey, you you know, which, which, an article which, on that which, one. Uh, and, you know, was, which one are you looking at there? Is that the, what, my, what the Green New Deal will do to my family? Or was that the – I've also posted yep, on my website yep, the actual – Okay, yeah, that was actually before uh, – uh, that's actually my daughter and son-in-law and her granddaughter there in the picture. But, uh, um, uh, but yeah, that's – yeah, thank you because it, it, it goes into detail exactly what's going to happen and how he's going to lose his job uh, because of this if it goes through. Um, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek satire a little bit, but it's also kind of scary uh, what these people – they don't know what's going to actually, how they're going to negatively impact people's lives, like uh, my son, my son-in-law, my daughter, my granddaughter. Um, you know, in there, I say, well, you know, they'll have to, they'll probably have to sell their home because they can't afford it. You know, he's not making enough money. But oh, by the way, that'll be okay. In the, in the original bill, bill um, uh, forbade any home foreclosures on anybody. Okay. Uh, and that they could renegotiate their loan through that new bank I had talked about. That wasn't in the, the bill that was just introduced, though. And thank God that um, uh, oh, Mitch McConnell uh, is going to bring it to a vote. I I think it's brilliant. He's taking a page out of Trump's book there with, with bringing it uh, to a vote. Let's get these people on, on board. Uh, uh, are you for it or against it? And, uh, you know, they're going to have to step forward and either say, yeah, I, I want to get rid of all gasoline-fired and diesel-fired or fueled vehicles. Um, that, that's not going to get them many votes. But I will say on my – Definitely won't. On the website, too, though, um, there's a, a link to the Green New Deal. This is actually the text – of the Green New Deal, it's hard to find anywhere. Uh, so what I did was I captured it, and it's hard to find. If, if it is out there, it's barely legible because there's. So I've cleaned it up. The text is there, so you can actually read what the Green New Deal is. You'll see a page there. Um, uh, if you want to read actually what's been proposed um, there in a legible form. Uh, so it's again, it's it's. There's not a good place to find that other than here. 
Uh, I've also got a, a page there on, no. on on forest fires and a and a blog posting on the on the California fires if you want the data on that. Well, people can just simply go to um, <clears throat> excuse me your website and they can pull all that stuff up. Um, trying to send Curtis a text. Curtis, just look for a text that I'm going to be sending you in just a second. Uh, I was going to have a question for you now. Oh, um, they were talking about a livable wage in this bill. Uh, but mm-hmm. lo and behold, New York City just passed that $5 minimum wage, and what has happened? People are working at fast food restaurants are being replaced by automation, something I predicted years ago. Yeah. Yep. That's a fact. And the other thing we haven't talked about with this Green New Deal, uh, what your, your girlfriend Alexandria uh, wants to do is replace air, airplane travel with trains. And we just saw what happened in California with that boondoggle. Uh, they're going to – they had a, a billions – I don't have the, the numbers, but billions of dollars of cost overruns. And Gavin Newsom, the new governor of California, pulled the plug on the biggest uh, train system – that we were that, that was being planned because it was unfeasible, unworkable, and it was going to be I think twenty thirty till it was done, with billions of dollars of cost overruns. Just announced it right after this Green New Deal, which was going to replace uh, plane travel with cross country uh, high speed rail. Um, and that that it's just not feasible, uh, and, it, and it was borne out by this by pulling the plug on the California high speed rail system. Um, these things are, are in the real world. These proposals just don't make sense. Uh, we have to push back on these. But again, I think it's an overreach, and it's exposing these uh, these green policies as, as unworkable, unrealistic, and, and unattainable. It's funny because Dashquas posted a comment in the chat room. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's along the same lines. A reporter asked the congresswoman. From Hawaii, how are you going to get to Hawaii by train? <laughs> right. Because I love traveling I saw, in trains, but I can't ride up to Europe or Hawaii. So yeah. what are you going to do? Are you going to use steamship? <laughs> yeah, I think I think Sasquatch called in the, the last time I rode in. Last time I was on with you, and uh, so that's good to hear from him or her. And uh, it's a he. Um, he okay. I don't want to be sexist, but. You know, there are some pretty good-looking Sasquatch out there that, you know, but... Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> but there's... Uh, uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting ride, uh, Annie. And like I say, we you interviewed me, I believe, in all over a year ago, the first time. And uh, like I said, this, this last uh, interview last week uh, in Dallas, sitting down with Glenn Beck, was, was huge. And... Uh, uh, seen a huge, huge bump, and again, we've our uh, smartphone app. The the sales have just exploded, and it's it's just it's way cool. It's an awesome app. Uh, it puts all this information right in the palm of your hands, and uh, uh, so. But again, yeah, on I was, my blog, I was playing I, around I, with it last night. Yeah, isn't it great? I mean, just huge amount of information there. And then I I've been creating videos. Uh, not for all of them, but for for many of the most important ones, I created three or four minute video um, that's packed with information. Uh, it just it takes so long to do a you know to, to create a three minute video. It's it's days of work 
getting ready for all the uh, I might have 20 or 25 different figures that I pull up on each one and just to get them ready it just you know just a lot of time out uh, but I'm getting back to uh, writing commentaries again I'm I'm in the middle of writing one on um uh on uh, uh, uh this this thing about the a native american genocide uh and we've got a uh, i've got a, a new uh, pr guy that might have actually reached out to you um that was pretty cool one of the top conservative uh, publicity people i'm not going to say who he represents but he he actually approached me and said greg i want to i want to i said i can't i can't afford you he says, no, no, you don't understand. You, I, I want to represent you. I like what you're doing. I like what you're saying. You know, you're writing great stuff. Um, you just, you just tell me what you can afford. And he says, I've got, I've got big names that are, I'm doing fine. And so, um, he's reached out, and it's been, it's been great. Um, but it's, it's nice to have that affirmation of what, that you're doing something right. So, uh, uh, AJ, I've been. I've been working with AJ for quite a while. Um, yeah. And, uh, I should have probably I, said I that on air. But... Two days ago. Okay. Oh, AJ good. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> uh, but it's too late. He's listening in. But AJ's a great guy and uh, been been doing great. We just placed this uh, uh, um, radio host uh, out of Houston, just posted a, a great um, app uh, review uh, on uh Laura Ingram's site yesterday, uh, his book and app review. Uh, and again, that's driving more sales Excellent. and more, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And, and you, you, and know, you say your other, your other, you. your, your other interviewer didn't call in, huh? Uh, my co-host Curtis just got off the phone with him. He's right now managing a crisis and he will be calling in in about five minutes. Um, okay. <clears throat> You had mentioned earlier uh, another book that you had written. Uh, when did that one come out? How did I miss that? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's. I'm working on it. It's in my head right now. We're going to be starting ah. on that shortly. Right. Maybe I miss. Maybe I, I misstated oh. that. And uh, and what so is it about the writing? Um, it's similar. Um, but I can't. I'm, I can't really talk about it. Is you might get the idea and write the book yourself, <laughs> but uh, it's, it'll be, you know, or Curtis. Curtis might take off, and you know, two weeks before the publication, yeah. there's a new book by Curtis out there on, yeah. on yeah, the I'm same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, but we're uh, again, we're we're continuing to work, and I'm traveling, uh, speaking. I'll be in, uh, traveling up uh, to Northeast Pennsylvania, and then. Uh, next week after that, I'm speaking to the Ohio Geologic Society, a large meeting over there, uh, on uh, the important role of a long-term geologic view in the climate change debate. Um, but we get – usually I get some pushback. There are usually a couple people that are very much opposed to having me speak at scientific to scientific groups um, – they say, you know, they completely misconstrue what I have to say. You know, I'm a denier, a science denier. But again, we've talked before. It's really those on the left uh, that are uh, really the true science deniers that that don't uh, allow any any type of science that was uh, to be presented that, that contradicts uh, man-made catastrophic warming. 
as you know, I think we talked about a, a professor where I'd, I had offered to speak to his his uh, class, uh, and he said, absolutely no way. He says, I don't want my students exposed to this kind of science. And, and that's what we get. That's what we get. They don't want them exposed to this kind of science because the science um, disagrees with this notion of, 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 of catastrophic man-made warming, and we, we, they can't have that. They just can't. Well, the, the whole irony is is that you originally set out to prove climate change. You were, you were saying, all right, we say the, the climate is changing because of mankind and CO2 in the atmosphere and all these other uh, chemicals in the atmosphere. You were, were actually trying to prove it. In the end, well, you yeah, changed. I, I, yeah, I, it was actually a search for the truth is the way I put it because I wasn't sure what the truth was. I, I knew that there were some of the things we were being told about our changing climate were just wrong. Because as a geologist, I knew that they were wrong, and I suspected other things, but I didn't know. And that was that's what I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to seek the truth, and it was that search for the truth that really led me uh, to this. And once I got, and it was really the revel, the huge revelation is when I started researching forest fires and drought, and I just said, "Wow, wow." completely opposite of what we're being told. And, you know, why are they, and, it was, and it's so clear. It's not even close. And the experts, the, the fire experts around the world attribute the decline in forest fires to climate change, um, increasing precipitation, uh, leading to higher soil moisture, uh, and that's turbocharged by uh, CO2 fertilization effect means that the pores on the plants, the stomata, are smaller, so they're not breathing in and out as much. They're not losing as much water. Um, so they're not sucking as much water out of the soil, and they've reduced water needs. And all of that's going to a greening of the earth. It's, it's stunning. Uh, just another a great study last week was released, uh, again, based on NASA data, uh, just showing how much the earth is greening. And the two areas where the greening is most... Um, impressive are, are India and China, um, some for, formerly arid areas that are just, you just look at these and go, wow. Uh, and in fact, if you just Google greening in India or greening in China, you'll probably be able to find this, this, new, uh, this new study. But it's, 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 it's the wow factor when you look at these uh, stunning NASA uh, Photographs and, and maps of of where the Earth is greening. It's it's they're actually beautiful, stunning. Yeah, we also show in your book and on the app <clears throat> with the increase of CO two. Also, crops increase exponentially. How we can help alleviate hunger in the world by increasing CO two in the atmosphere. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. There there are a number of things going on that in, increasing crop growth. Uh, but and of course mechanization, uh, farming practice changes, um, things like that. You know, GMO crops um, are increasing food production. Uh, but the increase in temperature, rising temperatures, leads to uh, longer growing seasons. Right, so we can have more plantings, killing frosts, uh, and 
earlier in the fall or in the spring and arrive later in the fall. So we've extended growing seasons. And then the really big boomer there is this uh, increase in carbon dioxide that's fueling plant growth. Um, there's a study I've got uh, in the book and on the app uh, by Dr. Craig Idso and his team at CO2 Science, uh, laboratory studies showing that uh, I think it's something like 95% of, of the crops that are consumed on the earth, he studied those crops, and they did laboratory analysis of what the effect of 300 parts per million increase would be. And the average was 46% increase in, in uh, uh, biomass uh, of the crops. Uh, and that, that's well, huge. Gregory? Uh-huh. Yes, it is. It is very huge. I want to thank you. You were a trooper. You stuck around for an additional half hour. God bless you, Greg, because I've got the next uh, guest up on the line. All right. You are an Thanks, angel. Annie. Thanks. Thank Bye you. Bye now. Hey, you so, take care. <laughs> All right, Curtis. Get, get going on that book. Go write that book. All right. All right. She's <laughs> written 24. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Gregory Wright, so check him out, inconvenientfacts.xyz. And if my computer is behaving here, there we go. Uh, we want to welcome aboard a new guest, Carrie Cashin. Good afternoon, Carrie. How are you doing today? Oh, you sorry, I'm with doing us? all Are you there? Hello? Yeah, we're here. Oh, good. We're I'm here. all we good. How you. are you guys? Perfect. Oh, we're hanging in there. Oh, we're hanging in we're there. Doing fine. I want to welcome you onto the show. Uh, because I first heard you when you were on Joe Messina's show, The Real Side. Um, he right. has great guests, and I was glad that he put me in touch with you. Uh, you run uh, a rehab facility called Action Family Rehab. Um, people can find you at actionfamily.org, which deals with addiction, and you deal with kids and families and adults in helping to rehab them from drug and alcohol. And you started this a long time ago. Uh, because something yes, happened yes. to you in your life. You've been clean and sober for 38 years. Tell us about it. Exactly. This. Yeah, 38 years ago, I was I was one of the people that was really sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, there was, I just couldn't get off of anything. It took complete control of my world, and I actually found myself on a window seal, three floors up with a gun in my mouth for two days. And my plan was to fall out the window and pull the trigger. That's how bad it got. And, and then from there, I went into a I went into a rehab, stayed there a few months. In those days, you could stay there a long time. And um, after I had about a year clean and sober, I decided that you know this is my passion that I was going to help other addicts and alcoholics get off drugs and live a better, clean and sober life. And I've been going 37 years now. On, on working with people. So it's been an incredible journey. Wow. Yeah, because yeah. you now run two adult rehab treatment centers, three intensive outpatient, outpatient treatment centers. Uh, you've launched an adult sober living. Um, you are all over the place. And you used to host mm. for 10 years a radio show, Families in Action. Yeah, actually, you have 15 years. So yeah, 15 years we were on the radio, and uh, you know, plus probably a hundred different talk shows and TV shows and news things that I've done. Because the, especially recently, I've been screaming—not recently, for the last 10 years—it's getting 
out of hand that we're gonna we're in the midst of an opiate um, crisis. Literally, ten years I've been screaming that more people are gonna die from opiate overdoses than anything else, and everyone thought I was crazy. Now, now we're in the midst of an opiate crisis, and everybody's talking about it, and it's it's completely off the hook. So I mean, you know what's really crazy is I'm thinking about that, and I just did an intervention. That's why I was late to the to the to the show. Um, I had somebody that I did actually try to get into treatment about a week ago and decided he didn't want to go. Now he's in the ER. He almost died. So every hour we're losing eight people minimum to an accidental drug overdose. That's every hour we're losing eight people minimum to an accidental overdose. You know, we're saying accidental. What about suicides and burglaries and domestic violence and arrests and car? You know what I'm saying? It goes on and on and on. So we are in the midst of a pretty serious crisis, and everyone hears crisis with opiates. They think heroin. Well, let me tell you, it's not just heroin. A lot of people that I'm dealing with that we lose are pain medications. So we really have to start screaming. Imagine if you turned on the TV and every hour, eight people were getting shot to death in the street. What would we do? We'd be screaming. Well, every hour, we're losing yep. at least eight people to an accidental overdose. We really need to be screaming. Yeah, and cops are responding, and people are now stocking up the Narcan uh, for these overdoses, but you can't always get to that person in time with the Narcan. So, no, so yeah, this way, I'm going to overdose. No, you're right. Go uh, ahead. And I deal with all I deal with all these addicts, and they say, "Well, we have Narcan." First of all, here's what I get: I get phone calls from these people saying that I know I'm playing Russian roulette. Every time I smoke this heroin or I shoot this heroin, I feel like I'm going to die. I'm, I know it, it's going to happen one time, and we have Narcan. Problem is, a lot of these people they use together, and and if by chance there's too much fentanyl or something like that, they both die. So it's and I've seen that happen a lot of times. So Narcan is a great drug. Don't get me wrong; it's a miracle drug. It saves lives. It also gives people a false sense of um, safety, good and bad, when it comes to it. Yeah, it is. And and it touches everyone's family. Someone in your family, somewhere along the way, has the addiction. Uh, Someone very, very dear to me, my stepson's daughter, lost her mother and stepfather. Together they overdosed. So she has has her, her, her natural father, but she lost her stepfather and mother all at once because of Terrible. drug addiction. And it's, it is, yep. it's touching everyone's family, and it's costing the nation an untold amount. Oh, yeah. Now, the question oh, yeah. is, is, how is it that someone ends up becoming an addict? Because you, know, you grow up as a kid, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to become mm-hmm. a fireman, or I'm going to become a doctor, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this or that. And you have dreams and hopes and aspirations for your life. And then when you do reach adulthood or you're you're, you're an older mm-hmm. child now, you're an addict. Right. How does this happen? Well let's, well, let's look at it this way. Forget the disease model just for a second, even though we know alcoholism, drug addiction is a disease. But let's forget about that. All drug addiction, all drug abuse starts innocently. 
and when we're young, it's like you said, we have what I call contracts. Meaning when I grow up and want to be a fireman or a vet or a cop or a baseball player or a model, I don't think I ever met anyone that said, when I grow up, I want to be a drug addict. So what happens is we, we and then we have another set of contracts, meaning when I grow up, I will never. Remember those? I will never. I'm not going to smoke cigarettes because they'll cause cancer and they can kill me. I'm not going to use drugs, those kind of things. What do you think the first contract that most people break is? What do you think the first thing they do? What's the gateway drug? What do you think? Uh, let me see. Probably a cigarette? Exactly. Well, it used to be. Now it's more vaping than that. But there's only two reasons a child and adolescent would light up a cigarette. Number one reason is the cool people are doing it. He wants to be part of that crowd. But, and, and what happens is little Johnny goes and he starts hanging out with that crowd over there. And somebody says, hey, you want a cigarette? And most of the time, little Johnny will say no the first time. But he's there every day. All these people are smoking. It's all around him. He starts to get desensitized. And eventually he says, what the heck? One hit won't hurt me. And he takes it. What did he just do? He broke a contract that he made probably when he was in kindergarten. How does he clean that up? It's only a cigarette. I'll never smoke weed. And he means it. Problem is he's still hanging out with the same crowd of people. It's just a matter of time. Somebody walks in and says, hey, Johnny, try this. Oh, no, I'll never use drugs. What do you mean drugs? This is only marijuana. It's legal. They use it for medical things. It's not a drug. Now he's starting to get desensitized again. Everybody's doing it around him. He's getting curious, and one day he takes his first hit. What did he just do? Contracts are getting weak, but he did more than break a contract. What he now did is he really set himself up in that environment with those kids, and that's what they're doing. So he did that, plus he smoked something that made him feel what? Pretty darn good. So if somebody tells you that drugs makes you feel bad, they're lying. So now he's 14 or 40 or whatever age he is. He's hanging out with the same people. He just smoked some weed. Contracts are getting weak. How does he clean it up? Pot will never use hard drugs. And he means it. So what happens now is he starts going, he's hanging out with his friends. He's going to parties. What do you think that parties? Probably everything. Somebody hands him something and says, try this. Maybe it's who knows what it is. It's crystal meth or it's, it's opiates or whatever. And, and he, says, he says, no way, I'm never going to use hard drugs. But he smokes a little bit more weed. And he drinks a little bit more of the tequila. He's, his motive, his, his reasons to reason are starting to go away. His inhibitions are getting less. And somebody says, just try it. He's already high. And he says, oh, what the heck? And he takes his first hit. Those kind of drugs, if you have an addictive personality, meaning crystal meth or opiates or any of those things, you can get emotionally addicted the very first time if you have that personality, the very first time. And what these kids are facing today are different. Yes, I have 38 years clean and sober, but these kids have it a whole lot rougher. The drugs are a whole lot different. They're a whole lot more addictive. Things like meth, for instance, let's just pick that for a second. They take a hit of that, 
and it's a shortcut to the pleasure zone of their brain, meaning instantly they feel different and better than they've ever felt before in their life. How do you tell a kid that's 15 or adult that's 48 something that made them feel so good is bad? You know what I'm saying? That's what we're yeah. fighting against. It's, I was going to ask you about that. If you've seen a change in the drugs, because um, I oh. know when I became a cop, uh, crack was something brand new. But now right. crack is to the wayside. You know, heroin used to be the drug of, of choice, then it was replaced by crack. But that, that was then right. replaced by heroin once again because heroin became mm-hmm. so cheap. And now you've got and, the and, um, yeah. opiates that are out there. And pot is not grandpa's pot. It's not the same pot no. that came out in the 60s and 70s. The THC oh, no, getting, in the marijuana is 20 times higher than what it used to be. And even higher than that, because it used to be in the like 0.3 milligrams THC. If they're taking a hit now, it's in the 20s, and the edibles are up to 100%. The edibles and the orders and the and the um, edible and the oils. So these kids are messing with something. I'm dealing with people and, and my rehabs and psych units that I deal with that are psychotic, and the only thing we're finding in their systems is THC. So it's starting to really be alarming. On, on the, how it's affecting some of these people, especially young youngsters with the teenage brain that's not developed yet. In fact, I just want to back up for one second. We were saying how somebody becomes an addict by experimenting. Really, that's how they do it. And I also think that when, when there's two reasons an adolescent would smoke a cigarette, and this is really for the parents out there. Number one reason is to be cool. Number two is to learn behavior from home. Do what I what I what I say, not what I do, does not work with children. Kids kind of listen, watch, and figure out what we're doing, and they want to sometimes mirror that. And the reason I'm bringing that up is a lot of the children that I'm dealing with right now and trying to get them off the drugs say, why do I need to get off when my parents are doing it? So it's really wow. becoming a, a – yeah, and I've been screaming, like I said – for 10 years that we're going to have an opiate epidemic and here we are. Now here's what I'm screaming and I want everyone to hear this. Clearly the next public health crisis in this country is going to be adolescence and THC. Guaranteed. Carrie, Guaranteed. I got a question. Yeah, this, uh... is, are they still using the right. 12 steps of recovery and um, rehab centers and um, how successful is, is it? Most rehabs are, along with, of course, all, all the other therapeutic stuff. You know, we have therapy and there's psychiatry and all that kind of stuff, medication if needed, and meetings too. And so it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's, 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 of course, religion. There's 12 steps. There's therapy. There's psychiatry. So it's, it's a combination of everything. But another thing now, you said you that I just want to comment on, Go ahead. Sorry. Go, go ahead, Carrie. The other thing that's pretty scary, and, and one out of every six Americans will have a drug problem in their lifetime. Doesn't mean they're going to be shooting dope in the in the bathroom. That means that they're going to have a drug problem, meaning could be opiates, could be benzos, meaning Xanax or Valium or Ativan. But one out of every six drugs. Exactly. Yep. So that's that's another thing that we all need to pay attention to. That, that so that 
and that's I said that for a reason. We're treating two different kind of addicts, guys, right now. One is the one that we just talked about that starts breaking their contracts and you know, from cigarettes to weed to whatever. The next people that we're treating, the next addict, is these accidental drug addicts, meaning they have no history of substance abuse. What happens is they went to a doctor, they had a surgery, they started using um, opiates and somehow never stopped. Opiates have a way of tricking your brain, meaning you're in pain, you use them for a, a month, you're kind of physically now addicted to them, you stop taking them, and all of a sudden you're back in pain. So I mean, a lot of people that we deal with been on opiates for years, instead of one every four hours, they're taking 20 or 30 pills a day. Frightening stuff. Yeah, I have a family member that, because of back pain, <clears throat> was on the opiates. And when he tried to get off, the pain was actually worse in his back because the opiates trick your brain. And once you end up coming back to being back in pain, it it has the opposite effect. You you are now even in worse pain. And people don't realize that. So one of the reasons why... Remember, remember you're also detoxing now, too. So you got the pain plus your detoxing. Yeah, yeah. Really, and really, one of the things that you know, you post up on your website some great articles, but people don't realize that if you decide to kick the habit, they shouldn't try it on their own, especially no. with alcohol it, and drugs. Correct. Well, alcohol alcohol is the worst. If if you first of all, if, if you put eight, if, let's say five um, heroin addicts in a bedroom and lock the door and you open the door in three days, it'll be pretty disgusting sight, but they'll all probably be alive. If you put five alcoholics in a room and lock the door for three days, probably a couple of them will be dead. So it's one of the most dangerous drugs to detox without medical attention is alcohol. Heroin and other drugs, I mean, you're going to feel like you're dying. Your skin will hurt, your hair will hurt, your body will shake, you'll have to run, I mean, all that kind of stuff, but it won't kill you. But there's certain drugs that you definitely never want to try to detox um, alone. That's alcohol or benzos or muscle relaxers like Soma and that kind of thing. I wouldn't suggest anything without medical attention, I mean, especially alcohol and, like I said, Benzos and muscle relaxers, but even, but opiates too. I mean, you should definitely get medical attention because you still could have seizures and convulsions and stuff like that. In your practice, you get all type, different types of uh, addicts. Is there ever ever a time where you just look at this one person and you say, no matter what I do and how I'm going to help you, you're not going to get well. No matter what you do, do you ever have a person like that where you just have to throw your hands up and walk away from them? Yeah, many times, but I'll tell you what, because I've done this so long, so many of them came back and surprised me. So I guess where I'm going with that is I would suggest we never give up. I mean, you can you can say, okay, I surrender until you're ready because we've done everything we possibly can. You've been in 18 rehabs. But always have hope. Always. The other part that is when people say well, they we- got to hit bottom, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, finish up. 
people have to hit bottom? Yeah, when people say people have to hit bottom, that's true. But I believe that we can help people hit bottom by doing interventions and stop enabling and that kind of stuff. Because if we just sit down and wait for people to hit bottoms, we can lose people. That's why there's such things as interventions and um, support groups for parents of alcoholics and, you know, Al-Anon and Agnarkon and all that stuff. Because the stronger people get, the better chance you have of helping people. I've done many interventions with people that you wouldn't think ever would be clean and sober and now they got years. Well, there's a question in the chat room, and if keeping in mind the new pot that is out there, that there's an urban legend. This is from Borp. It says nobody ever died from smoking pot, but with the new THC in there, is that any longer true? I don't know that anyone's ever died of pot. I mean, but you can also say, well, who knows? People get cancer all the time from smoking cigarettes, and they're smoking pot. Does it does it add to it? <laughs> Maybe, but I can. I mean, no one's going to die from smoking it immediately, but the long term effects are pretty darn bad. I tell you what, I sure. I wish people that said that could hang out with me for a week or a day, and just see some of the people that I deal with that actually they're not dead but they're fried, they're burned out, they have no motivation. They're learning if their adolescence is in the toilet. I mean, I actually seen people that are now psychotic, drug-induced psychosis, only THC. So this drug that people say is organic and healthy, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Well, it's funny. There was an article recently in Hillsdale uh, in Primus Talking about uh, marijuana, and his wife, the gentleman who wrote the article, his wife happens to be working in the prison psychiatric system, and she's saying that the prisoners that are coming in there to a person, when they have schizophrenia or bipolar, each one was smoking pot, which for some reason the new THC is causing as you said, the psychotic breaks. We schizophrenia. We recently had a shooting yep. from a person that's schizophrenic. Yeah. Yeah. When people say it, it never kills anyone, well, I never seen somebody smoke a cigarette and die immediately either. I mean, it takes years and years and years. So the effects of THC, we don't know, but we do know this: that it is causing psychosis that it is destroying people's motivation, that it is burning people out, not everybody, but a whole lot of people, that we that teenage and kids are doing it. And you know what's really sad? A lot of the adolescent treatment programs are closing because the parents don't want to deal with the, with the THC and, the, and, and that kind of stuff. They surrender. Then you've got my programs at 18 to 25. They're exploding. They're off the hook. We sometimes don't even know what to do with all the patients. Guess what they are? Those are untreated adolescents that started with um, that natural marijuana. Pretty scary. So the new pot has a long-term effect, but there's also another question in there asking what the effects are. Um, it, It arrests the development of the brain. And as you said, their adolescence is lost. It, it, it changes the individual's personality. They will forever be changed, correct? Yeah. 
Correct. And what also it does is it, it, it surely dampers their ability to emotionally grow. When we deal with people that smoke a lot of pot in their rehabs, it's not teaching people how not to use drugs anymore. It's not teaching people how to deal with feelings because they haven't dealt with them in so long. If you had a good day, you get high. You have a bad day, you get high. You're depressed, you get high. All of a sudden, you take all that away from people, and you got to learn how to deal with all those feelings without mistaking it for the um, um, where you have to go get high. You know, the obsession of getting high. Well, it's a sh- it's a shame we've run out of time because we're down to our last three and a half minutes, and we've got to close the show up. But Carrie, I'm going to yeah. invite you to come back in. Let me know what your schedule looks like, and we'll see when we can squeeze you back in and do a little more time because exactly. I have so many more questions to ask you. And it's important that we do have a growing drug problem, and with these all these states now passing, you know, recreational marijuana. We're going to cause a second epidemic, not just the opioids, but now with the THC. And especially THC in adolescents, we got real headaches coming. Absolutely. Carrie, I want to thank you for joining us, and God bless you for the hard work you do. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, life. yeah. Take care. Okay, guys. Okay, bye-bye. Check out Carrie Cashin's website. There's a link to it, uh, actiondrugrehab.com, as well as actionfamily.org. Curtis, that's all we got for today, and we'll be back here on next Friday. I want to thank everybody in the chat room and also up on the uh, YouTube and Facebook. I'm sorry I didn't get to interact with everyone on the others. I can only watch so many screens at the same time. So we'll be back here on Friday. I want to say good night, and God bless to everyone. Take care.